This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, the final show for the original first season. We are discussing the 13th episode of Made in Abyss, the double-length finale to its first season. No bones about it, this is a long video. Because of this length, I don't expect most people to watch it straight through. Um, I therefore occasionally restate things to help refresh earlier points uh, or sections. This adds slight length, but is shorter overall compared to making each part of the video completely standalone. With a video this long, there is the risk that your player will eventually desync the audio and video. Reloading the page or using one of the jump links in the description will hopefully marry the sound and picture back together. The end of the walkthrough is almost the halfway point, which might make a good place to split the video up. As always, after the title there will be our little progress meter in the lower left, as well as the labels in the upper left to indicate which section you are currently watching. Before we begin then, I want to take just a moment and talk about how I initially perceived Made in Abyss and my channel and how that has informed this first analysis series. This framework I use for organizing analyses, uh, based on something I call Five Masters Theory, was meant to be particularly useful for an ongoing story with clear division into installments. Um, it organizes the flow of the individual analysis videos while also giving distinct sections whose content can be compared against the same sections for other episodes. Uh, that is the theory, at least, but this was the first live test and illustrated the need for some revisions, um, a process that continues. The change from the long look to the short look was a step during this change, and today's video will illustrate another step. Long ago, I said I would go back to the long look for the end of the show, and maybe nobody remembers that now, um, but I do. So today, we will utilize the long look with a robust walkthrough section. However, it will be different from the one from the start of the show. This is going to be the Darling-style long look, where the characterization and world-building sections are not broken out individually, but are contained within the section walkthroughs. While I could probably make entire videos just out of characterization, um, I like the feel of doing it alongside the narrative recap, especially what we gain from focusing on the exact context. World-building naturally fills in during this as well, so a separate section becomes redundant. Another issue that plagued me for Maiden Abyss in particular was bad habits with regard to theme. I have a lot more experience and training for analyzing theme while looking at a complete work rather than just a piece of a work, and so I got too specific and too numerous with the theme categories early on. I corrected this somewhat by the theme cleanup, but I also ceased to add any new theme concepts from then on. This was an overcorrection from my inexperience. Today, I will try to rectify this deficit in our analysis, because Maiden Abyss has a lot going on thematically, 
and I would be failing you utterly not to try to explore more of it. You don't cave dive to the second level and just say, nah, I'm good, right? We aren't going to get all the way to the bottom, and I would argue no one actually can, but we're at least going to plunge further in. Finally, this series being just the first part of the story alters a lot of how analysis should be approached, and my ignorance of that situation contributed to some pretty disjointed structure and some mistaken assumptions. I can't imagine how much of a crazy person I sound like in speculation for people who had already completed the series. I don't like meta-information about a story, um, especially if I'm analyzing, and I would have been more apprehensive about choosing this um, if I knew it would be an unfinished story. Now, this doesn't mean that this series is somehow lacking just because there is more to it. In fact, there is an art to knowing just where to break up a story to give a good pivot point, and this finale does that about as well as any anime I've seen. I only mean that I could have done a better job if I had approached it in that manner. Looking back now, it's clear how this first season was divided. Episodes 1 through 4 are the call to adventure and leaving the familiar behind, with the fourth episode as a type of transition. They have left the surface, but not its reach, as Habo joins them and briefly connects them to the surface and the bottom at once due to his offer of escorting them. Turning down his offer and then reaching the second lair is the true threshold for disconnecting themselves from the surface lifeline. Then there is a self-discovery buffer episode with just our duo, the first experience with the curse that affects Rico, and the passing out that affects Reg after using Incinerator. This is followed by the episode 6 through 8 sequence with Ozen and the Seeker Camp, an interlude full of discovery about the past, of rude awakenings about what they do and don't know, and preparation toward the future. This also focuses on the characters they encounter, revealing what it's like to have your life interwoven with the Abyss, both to Reg and Rico, and to us in the audience. After that, there is again a self-discovery buffer episode with just the two of them. Then begins the final section where the Abyss beats them, and yet their crisis brings them into Nanachi and Miti's story, ultimately altering their party entirely with Nanachi's decision to join up. Thus, we have a nicely defined structure. Three large sections that involve Reg and Rico interacting with others and changing in knowledge and direction, separated by single episodes in which they make introspective discoveries and advance their own relationship. Had I realized this earlier, the significance of Nanachi showing up when she did would have made more sense to me, and we could have walked through these last two episodes a little more appropriately. So while today does not actually allow us to talk about the entire story of Maiden Abyss, it does at least let us talk about the final and longest arc of the season. While most of the arcs in this series have been about how other people changed Rig or Rico, this final one is revealed to center around Nanachi and Miti, and the way running into our main duo changes their story. The two pairs' paths join together, and by the end, a new formed team prepares to challenge the Abyss even further. Even our episode title indicates this forward-looking mindset. So then, Let's take a long, close look at the challengers. Our finale opens with a montage of key moments in our series, especially those concerned with meetings and partings. 
Behind this, we get a replay of the insert music from the very first episode, which played over the sequence of Rico and Nato carrying Reg back to the orphanage. As I've been working on this finale, I've been listening to the soundtrack for this series a lot, uh, basically every time I go to and from work. One of you gave me these discs back when you guys sent me that box of goodies, um, which is still something I can't believe happened. Um, it did, though, and it's been great to have the actual series soundtrack as background as I get lost in thought during my commutes. Because of this, I've gotten pretty familiar with the song that plays in our first and last episodes. It's called Underground River, and until I got to this finale, some of the lyrics didn't make sense to me. But I have a better idea of the meaning behind the piece, and why it is significant to use it in these two places in our series. It is going to get a place all its own in theme, so we will elaborate more then. Unlike the first episode where the piece played absent of dialogue, this time we get our final opening narration alongside. A journey from which you can never return, treasures you can never again acquire, your very life, which once lost, will never be restored. Rather ominous, no? Uh, these lines accompany Reg and Rico meeting, saying goodbye to the other orphans, and then plunging into the darkness. The implication is whatever hopes you may have or platitudes you express, this is farewell. The journey into the mall is one way, its effects irreversible. Loss is a foregone conclusion. As the next part says, nearly all things in this world will never go back to the way they once were. You set sail into the future with no return voyage. And yet, we talked about the drive toward the unknown long ago, and we'll do so even more later in the video, but even in the opening narrations lately, the central idea is spelled out plainly. In spite of the certainty of loss and change, our characters plunge on. The narration is direct. Understanding that, people still continue, even today, to get up and take another step forward. Spurred on by the thought of viewing a landscape they've never seen before, they keep on walking. The longing for the unknown, you see, is something not a single soul is capable of stopping. Now, do you think they are hitting us over the head with this idea? I mean, back when I consolidated our themes in episode 7, we already had so many indications about the importance of the unexplored and uncharted drawing people in. We were able to put to the lion's share of themes we'd noticed under the gravity of the unknown category. And it's not like it has decreased in prominence since then. Even Nanachi herself directly stated last episode that there is no way to stop Cave Raider's longing. So this opening narration seems like it is telling us things we already know if we have been paying attention, right? Well, it turns out that this is not just a restating of everything we have already seen with Cave Raiders in general and Reg and Rico in particular. Instead, it is linking this dominant thematic pattern to the real stars of the finale, Nanachi and Miti. Nanachi may not think of herself as a cave raider now, but we will soon learn that the pool of the unknown possibilities afflicted her as well. Opening on the surface is just refreshing us on the journey of Reg and Rico that led to here. It is setting us up to compare their path to Nanachi and Miti's, tale of meetings and hopes and loss. After this mood-setting opening, we pick up where we left off, with Nanachi posing the crisis question to Reg. As we thought, though, the inevitable passing out after Incinerator delays the rest of their conversation to some later time. 
Nanachi's surprise verifies what we guessed last time, that Reg's use of Incinerator on the Orb Piercer was a spontaneous and emotionally driven decision. We also guessed that Nanachi's reaction went beyond surprise at its destructive power, and instead was something like recognition. This turns out to be true, though in a different way than we guessed, and because Reg is passed out, she can only muse about this to herself. Thus, we have the world-building rules already well-established about Incinerator interlock with these character moments. This bridges the two incidents with the Orb Piercer. The first brought Nanachi to them, and the second brings a revelation to Nanachi. Because of the gap in interaction that is created by Reg passing out, there is a natural space for the long flashback. So, both halves of how Incinerator works, its function and its side effect, serve to set up the critical backstory, all in a way that flows naturally from what we already understand about the way the world works. That it also forestalls Reg's internal conflict until after the audience knows the context makes the whole thing even more seamless. This may seem like a really small detail for me to fix on, I realize, but using the nature of the world you created to tell the story so effectively is really worthy of appreciation. Structure is one of the hardest things to do well in episodic formats, and this finale works the way it does because of careful planning to bring these elements together in just this way at just this critical point in the overall story. Endings are hard. Creating a satisfying stopping place in an ongoing story is even harder. Making a double episode finale feel like it justified its runtime is harder still. But this tiny little narrative recap and thematic echo paired with a trick of world building sets the whole thing up for success. There's one more element to the setup. The opening credits occur between the recap of last time's question and the scene of Nanachi dragging Reg back to her hideout. I mentioned way back at the start that an upbeat credit sequence is not an indicator of an upbeat story. As we go further along our story, the actual tone gets further and further from the hopeful and upbeat place that we started. It serves as a reminder of how different reality has turned out. I'll talk more about it in theme, but this contrast is invoked at this moment on purpose. There's another element to this final opening as well. Usually right at the end of each OP there is a painterly still image that corresponds to the current arc. In the introduction, I referred to the main three sections that comprise this show, and each one of them has an image that it uses throughout. There's this one for the first part, appearing in episodes two through four, this one for the middle, episodes five through nine, and for the last few episodes, it has been this one. This actually matches our final episode the best, what with it being about Reg and Rico preparing to venture onward, while Nanachi is still clinging to Miti and the obligation she feels. Not to mention our episode title, The Challengers. Reg and Rico certainly look like they are gazing out at the abyss and preparing to challenge it together. However, the actual still image they use for our finale is this one, with Rico and Liza lying back to back in a field of eternal fortunes. It's the only time these images have been used just once, and in the finale no less. It's forward-looking and hopeful, because being able to find her mother and be a part of just such a scene is what drives Rico and, therefore, most of the story. Their relaxed and contented expressions suggest a future where this kind of scene is the new normal, that they are in a place where they enjoy such a serene moment at leisure. But it's also a little sad. Rico is far away from making this dream image a reality, 
and it may not even be possible if Liza is dead or changed. What we're seeing is not necessarily some future happiness, but the current fantasy that Rico is chasing. Coming as it does inside our credits, which, as I said, have served to remind us how much more bleak the world is compared to their initial enthusiasm, there is a bit of melancholy to the scene. This goal may simply be one more example of their naivete, something lovely but unreachable. And yet we know that Rico is going to suffer herself to chase it as far as she can. This is the conflicting bit of sad hope the series hands us as we prepare to learn the story of Nanachi and Miti. How very apropos. Like our brief bit with the caravan last episode, Nanachi's story opens with another rare glimpse at the world outside of Orth and the Abyss. Nanachi hails from some frozen version of Minas Tirith, apparently, and this extreme environment tells us that we are far away from Orth. It also exaggerates the feeling of suffering and isolation that lies over the children like a fog. They are huddled together in rooms with porthole openings, covering every bit of floor with their tattered mats and blankets, stacked level after level on top of each other and located in some lower corner of the city. All of that suggests a repurposed shelter and poverty, and we will soon see that this is likely some kind of orphan colony, surviving to the degree they can by sticking together. Nanachi is first characterized by being closest to the porthole opening. This is almost certainly the coldest part of the room, but it also provides the best light for reading, telling us that she chooses the comfort of what she finds in books over the comfort of physical conditions. Though we already had seen that she was knowledgeable about Abyss survival, it seems that the love of knowledge extends beyond a simple pragmatism. The book is open to our familiar map of the Abyss and its levels. Nanachi expresses a desire to go there, if it is the bottom of the world, and she offers this wish as a type of prayer. Contrasted against her destitute living situation, we are presented with the Abyss as representing a hope for Nanachi the wish for a life quite apart from the one she lives now. By the way, just an aside, I referred to Nanachi as female throughout this series, and seeing her pre-hollow neither confirms nor denies this interpretation. Um, I'm going to continue using her and she for convenience, as after her transformation, I get the sense that gender is irrelevant, and I'm not sure it changes much about the story we see up to that point either. Now, some activity draws the interest of the other children, and Nanachi follows to find out what it is. She takes the book with her, valuing it too much to let it out of her sight. We never see her speak to anyone during this entire bit in the snow, though she receives some verbal abuse from one child over how much she reeks. We will have more context for why later on. For now, we understand that even among society's rejects, Nanachi's rejection goes further still. A familiar face then appears before the small crowd of children. Or rather, the familiar lack of a face, as both Bandaruda and the Black Whistles accompanying him are encased in helmets which hide their features. While I'm sure their headgear has some functional purpose for cave raiding, we are obviously a long way from the Abyss. They stay covered up anyway. In-universe, then, their gear is probably linked to their identity and they probably derive some legitimacy and authority from being dressed thus, much as a government or military official can expect different treatment when in uniform. For us in the audience, though, the effect is that everything that makes Bondaruda and company human, emotive, relatable, or vulnerable, is obscured. 
There's an inherent inhumanity to his presentation, and this is echoed in his interactions with others. I'll go ahead and point it out now that his dialogue is always delivered in the same way. Not flat or emotionless exactly, but with the same measured bit of inflection regardless of the subject matter, like a news anchor modulating their voice for the interest of listeners rather than as a reaction to the subject matter. He will gesture for emphasis or use words that signal emotion or excitement or vision, but his tone and volume is always essentially the same. There is a certain calculated quality to his words if you take them as a whole, but each individual encounter would give you no reason to suspect as much. It is a performance in a sense, but one that he is always putting on. He has come here to recruit children that no one will miss for his experiments, but he presents his summons to them as an invitation to take part in something bigger than themselves. He doesn't simply ask in a straightforward way or attempts to recruit or bribe them. Instead, he presents his effort and their part in it as something grandiose. He is inviting them to join his vision, not just volunteers or assistants for some unspecified task. What's more, this isn't really a ruse. He will later demonstrate that he believes in the importance of his work. It's just that he has a very different idea of their importance. We'll return to Badnerud later. Nanachi accepts, of course. Um, it's a little disorienting to see her in Orth peering down into the abyss in the same way we have seen all of the characters we already knew. Nanachi has seemed so other and so integrated into the abyss that it's surprising to see her in that familiar environment. It makes that environment feel unfamiliar. It also immediately draws a parallel between her story and those of our other kids who have taken the plunge. Um, we will come back to that idea. Midi joins our story next with a short overheard exchange to let us know that she is an outsider in her group just as Nanachi is. These children come from somewhere else in the world. By the way they are dressed, it must be somewhere very warm, somewhere very distant from Nanachi's homeland. This tells us how wide-ranging Bondarud's search for volunteers was, and how far his infamy as a white whistle must reach. Though we only see 40 children gathered for this particular descent, the large range over which Bondarud can gather volunteers surely implies that he can, and probably has, brought hundreds of children into the abyss. Now, cave raiding is a dangerous pastime that is regulated with ranks and permissions about depths and so on, and it takes many years to gain proficiency. Orphan children gathered from far lands with zero experience don't seem like they'll be very useful, right? Trying to descend normally with this crew would just amount to you setting up a buffet for the abyssal creatures, to say nothing about official regulations or something pesky like ethics. And so, of course, they have a way to circumvent these hangups, a kind of deep diving gondola that appears to be lowered down an angled track. This is going to deliver them right to the fifth level, skipping all of the normal challenges of the descent and protecting them against the things that would normally try to eat them. Our gondola solves the obvious story problem of getting random children down into the depths of the abyss. But wait a minute, where does the path for this thing run? We've seen Reg and Rico rappelling off cliff sides and tightrope walking among upside down tree branches and tunneling through Neritantan dunes in order to progress down. There is nothing anywhere like a vertical train tunnel or any artificial construction on that scale even one level down. What's more, this is several orders of magnitude safer than the normal way that people descend. 
If such a thing can be constructed to go as deep as the fifth level, then surely they can build devices to take them to the second or third or fourth, no? Or just way stations along the way? This seems like the kind of thing that would greatly facilitate increased exploration and extraction of wealth from the abyss, so the guild and city as a whole should be highly motivated to implement such a system. And that's just considering the ease of descent. Coming back up seems even more beneficial, as I'm sure it could move at a snail's pace or a safely determined interval, um, with a safe place to recuperate or suffer each curse. The scale of this thing means that there's no way it's just Bondarud's pet project or some illegal smuggling tunnel. Like, 13,000 meters down is further than we in our reality have ever, ever drilled, and that is just a hole a few centimeters across. The furthest underground tunnel we've ever made that could fit a human is only about 4,000 meters down. This is either an incredible engineering feat, or the repurposing of some pre-existing system that the relic-creating civilization left behind. Either way, such a convenient means to tackle the abyss should be heavily utilized and widely celebrated, right? Yet there has been no mention of anything like this in the series. If Rico knew about it, they surely would have made their way to the tunnel, even if just to have a direct route downward. It's hard to imagine that Liza and Ozen's expedition to the Unheard Bell would have taken 10 months if they could use this device, right? I realize that you can't actually explore from a train car, but as a means to make ingress and egress a lot safer, it beggars belief that such a system, or one like it, wouldn't be in Y usage. That leads me to assume that its existence is largely a secret. The guild, or some faction within the guild, keeps the knowledge of this thing under wraps which means that there is more value in keeping it hidden than there is in greatly increasing the number of successful expeditions. Why might that be the case? I get the feeling what we are watching play out here with Nanachi and Miti and the others answers this question for us. There are orphans right here in Orth, but they are connected to their community and learn to cave raid in the traditional way. They are trained at least in part and are way more knowledgeable about the Abyss than Nanachi's group, so it seems reasonable to assume that the whole point of getting orphans from somewhere else is to keep that information secret. No one on the surface is wondering where a bunch of children disappear to because they aren't from there. Whatever is going on in this facility is something being hidden from the people of Orth. Now, the uncomfortable part of that assumption is what I already said about how conspicuous the system should be. It seems really unlikely that at least part of the guild isn't aware of the vessel, but are maintaining its secrecy anyway. Thus, on at least some level, guild members are complicit in the things that go on down here. I've been mentioning lately that we might need to revisit any notion of white whistles or the guild as being benevolent or even neutral in ethical matters. The accomplished cave raiders are held up as national heroes, but they may all be a little bit closer to villains. This may even extend to people like Ozen and Liza. Or it might be why the two of them are disconnected from the surface in their own way. Regardless, the takeaway to all this is that I don't think we should view Bondarud as some amoral renegade or the person solely responsible for what is going on. I suspect there is a lot of blame to go around, and we are only just beginning to uncover the darkness beneath this civilization's veneer. Anyway, getting back to our descent, 
Bondarud once again frames their journey as part of a great undertaking, holding out his arms to hold forth with great pageantry. After all, they are going to the Netherworld's forward operating base, where they strive to unravel the final mysteries of this world. Yet this optimistic and visionary rhetoric is contrasted against the ceiling of the vessel, as the children huddle together with worried or neutral looks. There's no elation at all in these faces as they watch the symbolic shutting of the doors that cuts them off from the light of the surface world. Not long into our descent, Miti makes Nanachi's acquaintance. Just as they are dressed for opposite climates, they have opposite personalities, hot and cold. Miti begins talking about their future and aspirations right out of the gate, while Nanachi retracts from the attention and proximity of her altogether. But Miti doesn't take this hint, and I suspect this kind of invasive enthusiasm is just why the others were pushing her back in Orth. However, this is the opposite of how we saw other children treat Nanachi, and so she tentatively joins her in conversation. Miti is excited about the chance they have, and hopes to be a white whistle herself, but Nanachi simply says that she was fine as long as she could come here. Before now, she had just been raiding garbage dumps to survive, which explains how, even among homeless orphans, she would smell especially bad. While other orphans would steal or beg or perform to keep themselves alive, Nanachi admits that she didn't have the talent for anything else. Nanachi seems to feel a sense of shame from this admission, but Miti instead tells her that this is a great skill to have. There's nothing but treasures to pick up down here. Miti is so naively optimistic that she takes Nanachi's shameful admission and construes it as an advantage, as a skill. And without even slowing down, Miti asks to join this skillful new acquaintance as her partner. She doesn't seem to register Nanachi's hesitation or confusion, introducing herself and telling Nanachi that she is a future White Whistle. Somewhat overwhelmed by this whole onslaught, Nanachi gives her own name, which Miti takes as agreement. She cheers and embraces her, and while this might be way out of Nanachi's social comfort zone, a look around their room shows the other kids all smiling as they watch the exchange. Though it doesn't seem like these children were coerced on this journey, none has seemed particularly enthusiastic. This open display of affection and enthusiasm is probably a bright spot in the long, dark journey downward. Regardless of how it started, we next see that Nanachi has embraced their partnership as the two of them pour over her book. It seems she knows how to read nether glyphs, which surprises Miti. Being able to read them is uncommon enough that people will simply throw such books away. It's implied Nanachi may have learned to read them because there was no other reading material for her. Nether glyphs are old enough that their pronunciation has been lost, and so their current language is used to pronounce them. This is basically the same situation in our own world with the Egyptian hieroglyphs, where the exact pronunciation is unknown, and so Coptic Egyptian is used instead. Thus, I think the implication is that there was a clear break between the culture that wrote these things and the culture which exists currently, that some event or chain of events led to a divide between the then and now. I realize this was already heavily implied by the existence of relics and their mysterious qualities, but it's another nice world building to tell to help reinforce how much is not understood about the civilization that left its mark on the abyss. Nanachi's educational moment is broken by the screech of some abyssal creature, 
While the unknown of the vanished civilization is certainly intriguing, the unknown of the threats below are very real and very near. Nanashi and most of the children cower at the sound, but Miti is unperturbed. She suggests that next time they go check it out together, and flashes her optimistic smile at Nanachi. This is the scene that Nanachi recalled back when she decided to intervene in Riko's misfortune, this unflappable enthusiasm from her newfound friend. Nanachi's reaction is to smile in turn, as though this boundless optimism comforts her. To underscore this change in temperament, the very next image is the vessel doors reopening to let the light back in and let the children out. Miti rushes ahead of the rest, pulling Nanachi along, to behold the central pillar of light and the swirling shaft above. She's amazed at its beauty, but Nanachi is shaking, overwhelmed. Miti notices and reassures her, positive that it will be alright. Nanachi came to the abyss at all because she wanted something besides the life she had. She didn't have lofty dreams or boundless optimism or anything like that. She had no designs on a famed career or new friends or anything at all, except the chance to see this mythical place. Her friends are books, her talents are few, and her life experience to this point relatively miserable. Yet in the space of the journey downward, she has made a companion gotten to share her beloved books with someone else, and has someone to reassure her in this unfamiliar and intimidating environment. Miti is like an unquenchable ray of sunshine down in the depths, and having someone be so friendly and supportive might be a completely novel experience for Nanachi. Miti's inquisitiveness next leads her to ask Nanachi about the Abyssal Faith. This connects back to something Ozen was telling Reg during our middle arc, about how the cave raiders don't really believe in God, but they do believe in the Abyss. She says it is the very unknown and fearful nature of the Abyss that gives it the power to become their God. This makes the faith sound like it comes from a place of awe, of being overwhelmed by the Abyss and so treating it as though sacred. Nanachi, however, gives a description of the faith that sounds more like hope. Those who die in the Abyss do not perish exactly, but their souls return to the bottom of the planet. There the soul changes form and begins a journey to someone who has wished for life, or something like that. Nanachi may not be totally clear on the details, or perhaps the faith itself is somewhat amorphous, but it sounds like a type of reincarnation belief system, that souls do not come and go, but transform and become new life. This reading jives with the brief funeral rites we saw in the previous episode, where mourners are returning the ashes of the deceased to the abyss, along with the eternal fortune flowers. Like I said before, the flowers seem to be associated with the two gravesite areas in our series, the one behind Nanachi's place and the hill where Liza was supposedly buried, and this funeral ritual solidifies that link. Now with Nanachi's information about the reincarnation-esque element of this abyssal faith, I think we can safely think of eternal fortunes as representative of this whole soul transformation idea. There will be plenty more to say about this later on, so let us continue. Nanachi is absent-mindedly sketching Miti during this whole conversation, but is bashful about it and hides her progress when Miti comes close enough to see. I'm sure Miti would have tried to coerce Nanachi into giving her a closer look at this sketch, but they are interrupted by Bandruda coming to summon another child out of the room. This has been going on for some time it seems, and Nanachi and Miti note that there is a lot fewer of them in there at this point. 
However, they are still hoping that it soon will be their turn, and Miti hopes that they get to go together. Alas, that she turns out to be right. Way back at the beginning of our analysis, I brought up the idea that the series employed a world of children framework, that the story works the way it does because the main characters are children with little to no guidance from the adult world. They make decisions adults wouldn't make, and look at the world and their moment-to-moment -moment situations through the lens of inexperience. We in the audience are justifiably suspicious of whatever it is that Bondarud is doing with these children, but the children themselves don't know to suspect. They accepted the idea that they are helping a white whistle explore the abyss at face value, and they don't just have no fear about when their turn comes, they are eager for it. But when Miti is called away, Nanachi does something no one else does. She sneaks out to investigate. I don't think she suspects foul play at this point, but she has gotten the short end of the stick in her life enough times to not be completely trusting. She has also just made a friend of Miti, for all we know her first friend, and being separated makes her anxious and willing to do something risky. I say this because I think Nanachi being slightly less naive than the rest is why Bondarud's discussion about not using them as humans sets off alarm bells in her mind. It's also worth noting in this scene that the cave raider who is voicing ethical concerns does not wear one of the head-encasing helmets that Bondarud and his lackeys do. This is consistent with what I mentioned earlier about how obscuring their features intentionally makes them seem more inhuman. Having someone express some humane concerns with their face uncovered reinforces the symbolism by presenting the opposite. But the framing of the shot tells us that these objections will amount to nothing, as the one protesting is uncertain and head down while Bondaruda towers above him. The white whistle holds the power here, our troubled raider is well below him. Sure enough, when Bondaruda happens across Nanachi moments later, the dissenting cave raider is nowhere to be found. That said, their conversation suggests to me that even some of the people stationed in this facility aren't aware of what he is up to with these experiments. Thus, our earlier discussion about knowledge of what is happening being hidden inside the guild itself may ring true, and that even among those down in this fifth level facility, things operate on a need-to-know basis. This at least gives us some hope that the entire fraternity of high-end raiders is not rotten, that there would at least be some who would object to what Bondaruda is doing here. And what is he doing? Testing the sixth layer curse. We speculated before that someone might be creating hollows on purpose, and that meant there was some kind of experimental facility below Reg and Rico and the fourth level. Furthermore, we thought that this might explain Miti's existence. Now, I was sure that something was weird about Nanachi, but she does turn out to be a hollow after all. How terrible to find out so many of these things were true, and to find out why Nanachi is the way she is. Once Bandaruda has placed Nanachi and Miti in the chambers, he starts to explain the situation to horrified looks from our test subjects. There are few feelings worse than betrayal of having a trust violated. We, in turn, particularly hate to see things happen to children or even pets because they have an innocent trust in those responsible for them. However, Bandaruda doesn't see this as betrayal at all. He probably attaches no morality to what he's doing. 
Miti suggests that he has tricked them, but he disagrees. The research they are doing here will give birth to the hint needed to drive back the darkness from this chasm. They are getting to help high-level cave raiders explore the abyss. Not in the way they imagined, but I don't think Bandaruda thinks he is skating by on a technicality here. Rather, this is like the dogs and primates who were forced into testing for various space programs. Their sacrifice is not taken for granted, and indeed some of them have a high place of honor within those programs, but that is probably little comfort to the animals themselves. I said we would return to Bondarud later. We don't have a ton of scream time to pull from, but my read on him is not that he is some mustache-twisting villain. In a different story setting, he would be wearing a white lab coat instead of cave diving gear, working on some different scientific puzzle without stopping to think about any ethics or optics, the amoral seeker of knowledge. I mentioned his tendency to gesture and speak in grandiose terms. I think part of him believes in the romance of what he is doing, delving into the unknown and bringing human understanding one step closer to the truth of bringing light into the darkness. These experiments and the children's lives and maybe even his own life are just small things compared to the grand purpose of understanding more about the abyss and its mysteries. I'm not giving Bandaruda a pass here, and one might even say a belief in the importance of his work may be more sinister, but I think this sort of thing was inevitable where the abyss is concerned. I'd be shocked if it was the first case of innocence exploited to gain some ground in the place. Cave raiders may believe in the importance of what they do, and have even formed a kind of mysticism around the Great Pit, but at the end of the day, this place and the relics it produces are a major source of money and power. So much so that foreign cave raider attacks are a problem. So much so that there is an entire section of Orth that exists because of illegal raids. The details and weapons of White Whistles are basically state secrets. There is a lot of pressure on getting further into this unknown darkness, whether you are interested in money, power, knowledge, adventure, or even something a bit more spiritual. Not all of these desires are compatible, and each faction within the guild or city or wider world must necessarily compete for their own piece of the pie. Competition can bring out the best in humanity, it can also bring out the worst. Thus are Nanachi and Miti told of their impending fate in the same tone of voice that Bondaruda uses for everything, even the speech that first drew them here. They can only stare at each other in disbelief until the experiment is underway and they plunge into the cavern below. Soon enough, they will attract a host of hollows who crowd around their glass cage like moths around a flame. I guess the implication here is that these are all the other children, though I don't know if that means this is how they dispose of them, or where they keep them until they want to do some other experiment. Regardless, this succession of shocks is too much for Nanachi, who can only look with eyes and mouth agape at the horrors surrounding them. It takes Miti calling to her to snap her out of it. Miti knows she is going to receive the brunt of the curse, but cruelly, Bandaruda has told her that Nanachi might also suffer if she dies during the process. Thus, Miti attempts to put on the brave face here, telling Nanachi that she will endure, and forcing a smile despite the tears squeezing out from the corners of her eyes. 
She keeps it together for a moment, talking matter-of-factly about not becoming human, but loses her composure when she asks Nanachi to let her soul return to her. Even facing her imminent death or worse, she frames her peril in the context of the abyssal faith, an expression of hope that this is not the end, that she wants to return and find Nanachi again, on a different day, in a different situation, in a different life. And then the ascent. I'm surprised how little it helps to already know the end result. Midi's transition is awful, and with her crying in pain and begging for death, while the sound effects of broiling liquid give the entire body horror an extra dimension of visceral discomfort for the audience. It's so awful that Nanachi almost immediately forgets about her own transition, instead helplessly watching the change in her friend as she begs God for help. She had finally found a treasure, she says. Please don't take it away. But nothing stops it, and Nanachi must look on helplessly, knowing that she is avoiding Miti's fate for herself for no reason besides Bondarud's whim. How terrible that their cages are see-through and not soundproof. If you wanted to punish Nanachi for some reason, subject her to the worst thing you could think of, you could hardly do better or find something more potent than what she is going through right now. One of the cruelest truths of the universe, though, is that things are never so bad that they can't get worse. Nanachi is not just forced to watch this change in her friend and be spared in her place, but must now help the very architects of this monstrous experiment carry out more of their work. Nanachi has not put the trauma behind her, though. Even when she is supposed to be helping, we see her working on her sketches of Miti. It's like she is trying to hold on to the girl from before, creating an image of her that exists somewhere besides her own memories. It may be that Nanachi has been hoping that this research they are conducting can find a way to turn Miti back. After all, wasn't the whole point to figure out how to deal with the Sixth Lair's curse? The episode doesn't spell this out, but we get a hint that Nanachi is often drawing these pictures of Miti, that she is not letting go of who Miti was. She probably nurses some private hope that all can be set right. This is why she looks hopeful for a moment when Bandaruda is discussing how he now understands the curse that Miti receives and how she is now incapable of dying. But instead, the truth is revealed. They are killing her repeatedly to watch her come back to life, noting what changes each time. Seeing this horror for herself, Nanachi drops the drawing. She drops any hope that Miti will return to the girl she sketches. Since that's the situation, the least she can do is stop the torment of her friend, and so she executes their escape. Once free, it seems Nanachi first tries to make a life for them, having found the hidden shelter. She makes stuffed animals for Miti, tries to gauge her reaction to them. She's decorated a room as a kind of nursery, hanging leaves and stars from the ceiling, even a globe, perhaps as a stand-in for the moon. Speaking of the globe, that's Earth, right? Like, that's Australia, and New Guinea, and Indonesia, it's Malaysia, Philippines, and Southeast Asia. Is Maiden Abyss set on some alternate version of Earth? If I'm not mistaken, this is the first link to our actual world that has shown up, as opposed to this being some completely separate world that shares a technological parallel. Probably not important, but I wanted to note it because, well, she found a globe down here in the Abyss, right? Who would take a globe with them against all the other essential equipment they are carrying by hand? 
That seems unlikely. Any chance, then, that this belongs to the previous civilization from 2,000 years ago, rather than being the current state of the world? Could this actually be from some far future timeline from our Earth, with the relics the products of our own civilization at some distant and more advanced point, before some kind of event rewound the clock on progress? Well, no matter where she found it or why it's down here, the purpose for which she uses it is to make something like a home for the two of them. But it seems pretending to normalcy does not last long as we begin to see Nanachi try to find a way to kill Miti. She even drags cave raiders she finds into this experiment, which explains the proliferation of graves behind the abode. I confess that I wish we had a little more detail on this part of their story. Like, is this Nanachi doing some questionably ethical things to cave raiders to find a solution to the meaty problem? Have cave raiders become a group of people that she has reduced empathy for due to what cave raiders did to her and meaty? Or are these people who are doomed anyway due to normal abyssal attrition and Nanachi keeps them alive to make some final use out of their lives? Nanachi does apologize to the one we see for keeping him alive for no reason. Due to the way she originally tries to hide from Reg and Rico, and the black whistle that Reg runs into, I feel like we can wager that she only brings cave raiders back if they are going to die anyway. Like, she's not murdering these people, but I would have been interested to see more of the interaction she has with the cave raiders between Bondaruda and Reg. Now we see Nanachi going from wearing nothing to wearing the getup she is in when Reg meets her, telling us that some time passes during all these attempts to find a way to release Miti. This is also reinforced by the fresh grave at the time of the cave raider's death compared to how they are all overgrown when Reg sees them later on. And, of course, the collection of cave raider gear and whistles that Nanachi has accumulated for whatever reason. We are to understand that she has been searching for a long time and tried a lot of different things, burying dozens of cave raiders in the process. After this final scene of burying a nameless raider, Nanachi's narration transitions into dialogue instead, revealing to us that she has been telling this origin story to Reg all along. This might have been the first thing she did after Reg woke up. She then describes a relic, Sparagmos, that Bondaruda tested on Miti before they left. This relic destroyed her left eye, and yet it has not regrown, something which must have happened after the last time we saw the results of Bondarud's tests, since she still had both eyes then. Which just means that Miti suffered even after the time we witnessed, where Nanachi dropped the drawing. Anyway, the description of this relic's effects immediately remind Reg of Incinerator. Last time, I talked about how his use of Incinerator against the Orb Piercer surprised Nanachi, but it went beyond the simple surprise of finding out that Reg is packing that kind of firepower. I said that her surprise seemed more like recognition, as though she'd seen Incinerator somewhere before. Turns out that it's not Incinerator she's seen, but something that functions just like it. That introspective moment she has when she falls down in shock came about because she was connecting her long search for something that can permanently destroy Miti to the very tool that Reg wields. And so her request to Reg is not a matter of her being unable to bring herself to do the deed, 
or not wanting to make Miti think she is betraying her or whatever, Nanachi has long since squared herself up to killing Miti. She's tried to do so repeatedly, only to continually cause Miti pain. She's even involved the lives of others into this quest. I wouldn't be surprised if some little part of Nanachi's humanity has died with each failure, and some little part of her hope as well. What kind of toll does it take to work yourself up to say goodbye to your friend, to put them out of their misery, and then to have yet another failure, knowing that at some distant point you'll have to prepare yourself to try to say goodbye and perform a mercy killing all over again. This is so far beyond anything a child is prepared to deal with. With every attempt and every dashed hope, Nanachi probably eroded just a little bit more, became just a little bit more distant. I had noted before how flat Nanachi's emotional range seemed to be. The only strong reactions we've gotten from her were when Reg invaded her personal space. She just seemed a bit numb or indifferent, even when Reg was misunderstanding and getting upset at her. But in this origin story, we see her express a much fuller range of emotion. Fear, uncertainty, happiness, wonder, and shock. Yet we can also see the shift, from her weeping, mortified expression when an early attempt only causes misery for Miti, to her almost lethargic apology to the cave raider as she prepares to drive a stake through them. In a completely different way, Nanachi has become hollow. So she is not asking Reg to kill Miti to spare herself, but because it may be the only thing that can spare Miti. I have no doubt Nanachi would do the deed if Incinerator was a weapon that she could wield, but because she can't, she must include Reg. Even in this, Nanachi shows little emotion. Reg is understandably distressed. I said last time we looks like we are heading for a real crucible for our series with Nanachi's request, as Reg is unlikely to simply assent to killing someone that appears to him as an innocent. Predictably, Reg's first instinct, even after the story, is to question whether Miti was a lost cause, whether she really had lost her humanity. He begins to argue that she responds when called by name, yet Nanachi cuts over the top of him, matter-of-factly explaining that real communication is impossible, that she has most certainly tried. Yet she does this without raising her voice, without getting frustrated or impatient. She is just calmly resigned, and explains that in spite of Miti's state, she believes her soul may yet be imprisoned in that body. Reg wants time to think, and Nanachi says she understands. It is a pretty heavy request after all, and she originally asked him with no preamble. As we will soon learn, she never brings it up to him again. This despite the fact that so much of Nanachi's purpose and effort and emotional turmoil has centered around this quest of hers. Here is the answer to months and maybe years of an ever-dwindling hope, and Reg wants to think about it? But Nanachi doesn't voice anything like this. In fact, she makes sure to tell him that she'll keep treating Rico regardless, that she won't use the incredible leverage she has over them. Even though there's just one thing she wants in the whole world, she leaves it up to him. Ending the conversation then, Nanachi goes to check on Miti, as Miti is never far from her thoughts. Reg thinks about how vulnerable Nanachi seems to him in this moment, a side of her he's never seen. Looking around the room, he realizes how much of Nanachi's effort and purpose is centered on this mission to restore Miti's dignity, 
and doing so, he has to wonder what will become of Nanachi after this purpose is fulfilled. Days pass, and the question of what to do weighs on Reg's mind. Nanachi even comments on how down he has seemed. The idea of putting Midi out of her misery is a background part of Nanachi's reality, but it is yet a new and upsetting idea to Reg. At this point, our episode introduces a bit of levity to separate us from the heavy tones so far and the heavy scenes which will follow. Nanachi proposes that she will cheer Reg up by making him a hearty meal. The terror of this at least snaps Reg out of his funk, and to save himself, he proposes that perhaps he instead should make the meal. Turns out, it's not as easy as just remembering what he's seen Rico do in the past. The best part of this whole misadventure is not so much that Reg manages to do an even worse job than Nanachi, the best is Nanachi's deadpan commentary throughout the whole ordeal. In fact, she almost seems delighted rather than horrified when his dish turns out so poorly. Other than a means to lighten the tone, this failure on Reg's part helps remind us that these are kids. They aren't good at everything, or even passable. They don't have a full set of life skills. This inherent vulnerability is, I think, echoed in the next scene in which Nanachi reads to Miti. Even though Miti supposedly isn't there anymore, and Nanachi insisted they can't communicate, she still reads to her. I wonder, then, if she isn't reading bedtime stories for Miti so much as for herself. She is reading herself to sleep and taking comfort in this ritual of pretending like they are normal friends in a normal situation. A tiny page from the life that could have been. Yet under this, Nanachi knows very well that the situation cannot continue, even if Reg is still unsure. This then leads to what might be the most heartbreaking scene in the entire series. Last time, I praised the way Nanachi's request set up our finale because it meant bringing characterizations, goals, and themes to a head to show us which qualities were ascendant in our characters right as the final chapter begins. We had no context for why Nanachi wanted this before now, but we guessed that it would cause an internal crisis for Reg. He is a robot or similar, but in basically every way that counts, he is human. Sometimes more human than Rico. No matter why, the thought of killing someone who is not an immediate threat was going to trouble him. In order to give this conflict inside him the proper emphasis, this scene is set apart from the rest. It's carefully crafted to give his decision the gravity it deserves. The activity of Nanachi fishing gives Reg an opportunity to approach her away from the other two in a situation where she is unlikely to move away. Nanachi also has a reason to continue facing away from Reg. Ostensibly, she is watching the bobber for any bites, but functionally it means that she does not have to look at him during the whole exchange, which is probably easier on them both. Even the activity parallels her struggle. She had been searching for salvation or understanding when she came to the Abyss in the first place, and she found only misery. She has looked for a solution for ending Miti's pain, and has found only disappointment. She has been fishing for answers, basically, and yet she continues to come up empty. The tranquil setting and leisurely nature of fishing are a stark contrast to the actual content and context of the conversation. Here they are, discussing the use of Reg's destructive power to kill another person, four layers deep in the ruthless hostility of the Abyss, and yet they chat softly, 
in a lush and peaceful enclave beside a gentle stream. Even as Red gets increasingly animated, Nanachi stays even-tempered, almost resigned, as though she has had this conversation a dozen times in her mind. In fact, I think how unperturbed she is contributes to how animated Red gets, like he believes she is not really understanding him. In scene, then, Reg has reservations, as we expected. He looks around at the two of them and wonders if the situation is so untenable. Is some life at all, even if diminished, not better than having one's life end? Is Miti not happy together with Nanachi, in so much as she can be happy? But Nanachi was ready for these objections. Miti can't die, but Nanachi can. In fact, Nanachi will, sooner or later, and where does that leave Miti? Miti doesn't need to eat, she heals back any injury, but she feels pain. She cannot shield herself from the abyss like Nanachi can. Miti's existence would be one of near-permanent injury and regrowth without the capability to understand what was happening to her. A living hell. In fact, the same hell that Nanachi tried to free her from by taking her away from Bandarud. This is all still part of Nanachi fulfilling the very last thing Miti asked her before the change. Let my soul return to you. Reg's sense of humanity insists that he not take Miti's death lightly, but it also insists that he not take Nanachi's suffering lightly either. He believed he was going to have to make a choice between these two unfortunate situations, but Nanachi's revelation about Miti's inevitable future means there is really no choice at all. Reg can't doom her to that fate when he has the power to change it. This brings him to the other thing that he is wrestling with. What will become of Nanachi once Miti's burden is lifted from her? Has she even thought that far ahead? And so when Reg agrees, he immediately puts a condition on his cooperation. Nanachi must promise not to take her own life. Reg needs to look no further than Riko to see someone who is so obsessed by her goal that she can hardly think beyond it. As he looked around Nanachi's little hideout and sees evidence of her long efforts, it's not hard to understand why he might believe that she hasn't allowed herself to think beyond Miti's life. Reg is worried about what will happen if Nanachi no longer has this purpose. At first, she plays this request off. Of course she won't do that. She still has to take care of Riko, right? But Reg won't let her dodge the real promise he is trying to extract that Nanachi cannot let some temporary motivation be the only thing between her and suicide. He's overcome with emotion, in stark contrast to her matter-of-fact temperament, as though only he understands the serious implications of their conversation. And then the heartbreak. Nanachi says, oh, how cruel. The truth is, Nanachi has thought about what comes afterward. She has long been waiting to kill herself, needing only to send Miti ahead of her because she cannot send herself. Absolutely everything that brought the two of them to this point in their lives has been disaster. It's all been misfortune and cruelty and pain and an endless succession of bad news, except for the fact that they met each other. Of course, Nanachi will follow after her, hoping in some way that their souls will meet once more. I commented in past videos about the way that Nanachi was keeping Reg at arm's length, and I wondered if it meant she expected them to move on soon, or even that she might betray them. She was keeping them at arm's length, but this is the reason. Nanachi is waiting to die. 
Finding Reg and the Incinerator isn't just a means to set Miti free, it's a way for Nanachi to be free as well. Her life on the streets was misery, literally rooting through garbage to live. The abyss shone out to her as some tiny hope, an escape. She rides the wave of this hope and makes a friend along the way, but the abyss holds no salvation for them. Instead, Nanachi is given something she finally values and hasn't taken from her almost immediately. And actually, it's worse than that. Miti simply dying in that experiment would have been kinder. Nanachi escaped the hell of her orphan life for the abyss and found a worse hell instead. She has bent all her will since then to help the two of them escape this hell, and now the person who can release one of them insists that she herself remain. How cruel indeed. But there is more to Reg's point of view here than a moral inflexibility over suicide. Just like Nanachi, Reg is mostly coupled to another person for his own sense of purpose. In those moments before Nanachi revealed herself, when Reg thought Rico might be dying in front of him, how bereft of purpose do you think he felt? Is it possible that had Rico died then, Reg might be in a similar state as the one Nanachi is in? Is he so certain that she plans to take her life because he would have felt the same, eager to follow his friend into death because he has nothing else? And we can flip that around as well. Reg might also be basically immortal, might also be doomed to live on long past the deaths of anyone he knows or cares about. He might one day be lingering in the world like Miti would, wishing someone could spare him from such a fate. Reg's possession of Incinerator may be what involves him in this plan to release Miti, but he has a very personal parallel to the way these two have had their story unfold. Thus, when Nanachi agrees to his cruel terms, he says that he will do it, and will send Miti off with every ounce of his thoughts and feelings. The scene ends with Nanachi actually comforting him, even though it's her friend whose death they have agreed upon. For that death, Nanachi constructs something of a funeral pyre, arraying Miti amidst all of the stuffed animals she has made for her over time. She even builds a hoop over the platform to hang the decorations that once graced the bedroom nook. She fixes Miti in the middle of it all, and surrounds the platform with the eternal fortune blossoms that we now know are strongly associated with funeral rites. While I'm sure some of this is making Miti as comfortable as she can by surrounding her with the familiar, this also ensures that all the physical reminders Nanachi has of Miti will be incinerated alongside her. At first, Nanachi bids Miti farewell by apologizing for making her stick around, which to me sounds like she is apologizing for never figuring out how to kill her on her own. She says they will meet again soon and walks off to signal Reg to proceed. Reg is already teary-eyed at the task before him, but Nanachi has not changed expression at all. I already mentioned that she would have had to square herself up to say goodbye many times before this in all the failed attempts to release Miti. And yet, each time, her goodbye had been premature. It seems even now she retains the emotional numbness from this repeated ritual. However, as Incinerator spins up and Reg prepares to fulfill his end of things, Nanachi calls him off. When Nanachi realizes that death is really going to take this time, the barriers she put up around her own emotions come loose, and she rushes in for a much more tearful goodbye. She apologizes to Miti, tells her she was wrong and that they'll always be together, 
What do you think she is apologizing for here? Or what was she wrong about? Sorry for all those failed attempts to send her on? Apologizing for believing she could make a life for the two of them if they just got away from Bondarud? Or even further back, for believing that the Abyss would hold promise for them instead of the horror it held instead? Maybe even apologizing for not following her in death right away? Maybe a combination of all those things? for not finding a good solution for them both, for the fact that both of them will linger in their pain longer than she would like. Nanachi retreats once more to give Reg the go-ahead. Reg himself is quite distraught at having squared himself up to the task, only to have to do so again, and this time does not hesitate to fire Incinerator. It seems to work, taking Miti and every memento with it. The long labor finally truly fulfilled the emotional dam in Nanachi bursts, and she sobs openly about the loss of her treasure. Even though she protests at Reg holding her in comfort, she does not pull away. Who knows how many months or even years of emotions she is pouring out in this moment, when she, at long last, gets to say goodbye. The use of Incinerator once again sends Reg napping, and the memory of the past I thought might come after last episode's use now comes after Miti's send-off instead. It's a fragment of a memory and gives us no context or time frame, but we learn for certain that Reg and Liza knew each other for at least a time, and that they traveled together at one point. Reg feels sad in the memory, but does not know why and Liza commenting on him feeling down seems to confirm that this sad feeling is related to the time frame of the memory and not to the waking self that just killed Miti. Liza is cooking something and offers it to him, and he delights in the smell of it. This then links into him waking up to the smell of food in Nanachi's home, and perhaps that smell is what triggered his memory in the first place. But never mind all that, Rico is awake for the first time in three episodes. And, to the relief of us all, she has immediately gotten involved in the preparation of meals. She and Reg greet each other in a very low-key way. It's not a tearful reunion or anything so dramatic. It's more of a return to what they consider the normal state of things. There is a shared comfort in acknowledging one another in this manner. It speaks of a certain confidence in their relationship. Anyway. After a humorous bit concerning Nanachi's double standard over how she takes being touched by the two of them, they settle down to sample Rico's handiwork. Remember, Nanachi has never in her life had tasty food. Rico seems to have woken up almost as soon as Miti passed on, something that will come up again in a moment, and so Nanachi is still in the throes of her grief. She is not just facing living without Miti, but continuing to live at all with the unfairness of this world. Into that circumstance comes Rico's meal, which we know very well will be the best thing she's ever tried. Her eyes well with tears immediately, and she sets to eating every delicious bite as though her life depended on it. I know a meal seems like a small thing in the grand scheme. Um, even a particularly nice meal, as this must seem to Nanachi, is just a temporary delight. But just as a very small setback can send someone over the edge when they are under a lot of duress, a tiny pleasure like a good meal can be the difference between drowning in grief and still keeping one's head above water. A small comfort can be a bright star of hope in an otherwise endless night sky. 
Namachi's emotional reaction here is not purely because of the excellence of the meal, but the fact that such good things exist in the world and are accessible even to her, even in this state, is probably more reassurance than we can adequately understand. Namachi comes back from her bliss long enough to play off how good the meal was, but will be swung in the other direction when Riko asks if there wasn't one more person here. Reg and Nanachi immediately go still because, yes, there was until just a few hours ago, but how do you know that? Now our strange peek into Riko's nightmare from last time will be fleshed out. I wondered back then if this dream might be a deep memory of her time inside the curse-repelling vessel, with her deformed state possibly reaching back to before her birth when she was not yet completely formed. I also thought it might provide some insight into Miti, that because of Riko's birth circumstance and Miti's transformation, each of them was a creature of the abyss. They were, on some level, a type of kindred spirit. Before Riko's story about her dream gets to the imagery we saw last time, though, she explains that she came to inside a pitch-black, boulder-like thing. Maybe it's just because I already associated her more unformed state with a time before her birth, but it's hard for me to look at this imagery here and not conclude that this crack she is lodged in is supposed to be a birth canal. She says at first that the cavity inside was the same size as she was, but that it kept getting smaller, that it was painful and agonizing. We see the walls shut against her, and then the imagery we saw before, of the deformed or unformed Rico inside the dark and vaguely red chamber. Now, while dark with hints of red could invoke the curse-repelling vessel, it could invoke a womb as well. Rico's line over this image is that she didn't even understand what she was anymore. She was in some state where she was both physically and mentally changed from her waking self. I feel like a lot of these elements suggest Rico's dream centers around something reminiscent of her gestation, the time leading up to her birth. The idea of a space that recalls the womb getting tighter and tighter could suggest her growth from conception until being full term, when the walls would indeed be closing around her. Or, considering the birth canal-like space closes on her and then she reaches the unformed state, it could be a case of watching her birth in reverse, like she is going backward in time from who she is now to whatever she was before she came into the world. Even if this is not literally about her time inside Liza or the vessel, this dream really suggests some kind of birth or womb-like state to me. A state that is not quite life, but not quite death. Now earlier, we got a key piece of information to help our understanding of, well, of, well a lot of things in this anime, um, and this scene is one of them. That information is Nanachi's explanation of the Abyssal Faith, especially the part about the Abyss being a place where souls go after death, and then change form and seek out someone who has wished for life. A rebirth, it seems. This actually fills in a lot of gaps, which we will come up extensively in theme, but in this particular instance of Rico's dream, that idea of the bottom of the abyss as some kind of state of limbo or a holding area for souls now gives us another possible interpretation of what is going on here. Rico is near death during this dream, and the girl on the other side of the wall, who is surely Miti, is also in a state we might call between life and death. 
Nanachi's whole rationale for trying to find a way to kill Miti is that she believes her soul is still trapped in her body. And the crying, fearful state of dream Miti, I think, bears this assumption out. What we seem to have, then, is the souls of Miti and Riko transitioning toward leaving their bodies in death, only to be stuck partway through the process. Riko going from being herself to being crushed to a less formed state seems like it could be her soul leaving her body and returning to some more malleable or changeable form. That is, leaving for the bottom of the abyss to wait for a time when that soul would be called up again to return to life. That makes the bottom of the abyss a place where the darkness before life and after death are the same. It is both necropolis and womb. Maybe this is reaching, but I can't be the only person who thinks the bottom of the abyss maps we've seen look an awful lot like the cross-section of a person's abdomen, especially that section around the capital of the unreturned, which is also the section of the book Miti was reading that prompted her to ask about the abyssal faith in the first place. Even if I am being too literal, I believe this dream is about their souls in limbo and they being unable to understand what is happening to them. Miti's fearful crying must be how she has existed for some time. Riko is initially just the same, but hearing someone else in the same situation, or even worse, helps mitigate her own distress. In fact, she finds some release in doing her best to comfort the soul suspended alongside her own. Nashi had noted that Miti seems very fond of Riko, and guesses that maybe it's because she's a girl about the same age, but I'm pretty sure it's because of the situation in Riko's dream memory. Riko's soul is drawing as close to Miti as anyone can at this point, and Miti draws some comfort from getting physically close to her in their bodies as well. Now, Riko describes the smell of smoke and the crying vanishing, which is almost certainly Miti's true death at the hands of Incinerator. Then Riko catches a glimpse of a more formed silhouette of Miti as she prepares to leave. In her eyes, she says she saw the sense of longing that she so associates with cave raiders, and that connects her mind back to who she was before coming to the state. In fact, we see her basically back to her Riko form as she is explaining this thought process, and it seems that shortly afterward she returns to consciousness. Nanachi is staring into the middle distance as she listens to this end of the story, and wears just the faintest of smiles. She excuses herself, which gives Reg an opportunity to explain everything to Riko without making Nanachi relive it. However, I don't think sadness is the emotion ascendant in Nanachi right now. As we mentioned, Miti's death finally taking seems to have unstoppered her long-suppressed emotions and it's understandable she would want some privacy to sort them out. I think she is overwhelmed in the moment, not by sorrow, but by relief. She's been searching for a way to finally release Miti all this time, and Incinerator seemed to do the trick, but a lot of what drove her was the belief that she was releasing her, that her soul was trapped. Rico's story is about as close as she is going to get to having that confirmed. More importantly though, it's that comment about the look of longing she sees in the eyes of Miti's soul. Remember Miti's final request before the curse started to change her. Let my soul return to you. This isn't just a reference to the abyssal faith and its form of reincarnation. It's her professing a belief in it. A hope in it. 
a final statement of faith that some good can still come out of their situation, that despite the awful hand they've been dealt, there is still some outcome to wish for. To still have that longing at the moment her soul departs, even after that long dark dream, may be the best thing Nanachi has ever heard. It also suggests that there is something to this whole abyssal faith, which restores some tiny bit of hope to Nanachi's world. They may indeed be reunited one day. The next step in Riko's recovery is a Made in Abyss version of an anime staple, a visit to the hot springs. Nanachi's commentary as they approach suggests that the spring has restorative properties, just the thing for someone convalescing. Evidently, even other abyssal creatures realize this and come here from time to time, a bit like an oasis that draws all manner of life to it. Reg is still in his state of heightened caution, though Nanachi tries to reassure him about how docile the creatures who visit are. Even still, we see Reg cupping the water in his hand to smell it before Riko ever steps in. Though the visit in-universe is to help Riko's healing process, the scene itself was chosen for much the same reason as other instances of Hot Springs scenes, to spotlight the sexual tension between characters. Riko asks Reg for help undressing without a thought, but as he has all along, Reg reacts with a blush which indicates he understands that this is different than helping just anyone undress. There is a danger quite distinct from curses or creatures, but a danger nonetheless. Riko is as oblivious as ever and invites Reg to join her in the pool, which of course he resists. There's no medicinal benefit to him bathing in the waters, so better if he keeps watch. Then Nanachi, in what I expect is the beginning of a long routine, pipes up to say that she'll serve as lookout. She even adds a new danger of blood-sucking insects to contend with. Isn't Reg particularly good at shooing those away? Wouldn't it be hard for Riko to do it herself with only one arm? How could he refuse to join her in light of the situation? Nanachi is practically grinning like a maniac at this opportunity to discombobulate Reg, while he looks completely helpless at being so trapped. Disrobed, the two of them enter the pool, with Reg instinctively staying close beside her in the unfamiliar situation. It turns out that skinny dipping thousands of meters underground is not the only unfamiliar situation here, as Rico notices something out of the ordinary. Demonstrating her usual tact, Rico asks, what's up with your penis? Well, I don't know. What do you guys think is up with his penis? I'm not sure we can guess with it being off screen like this, but he sure seems embarrassed by whatever it is. Okay, I'm kidding. Obviously, it's thermal expansion due to submersion in the warm water, a very normal reaction for metallic parts. There's no need to blush, Reg, it's perfectly natural. Well, it appears we have found at least one reason for the series' insistence on making sure we know that Reg is anatomically correct. There's not a lot of room for interpretation about whether Reg is capable of being attracted to Rico now. I will say that I am suddenly rooting against my guess that Reg is potentially Torka reborn. Now, Nanashi isn't content with Reg's distress at this point, and from her position, magnanimously watching over them, decides to throw a little more fuel in the fire. She innocently asks Reg why he should be so fickle about all this. After all, he's already kissed her, right? Oh, whoops. Did Rico not know? Having stirred the pot even further, 
Nanachi watches on with a shroom bear eating grin. I'm not sure if she is only doing this to get a rise out of Reg, or if she has also taken it upon herself to play wingman, or wing woman. Wing hollow? Whatever the extent of her motive, she is undeniably pleased at the scene below. She speaks to Miti in her mind, thanking her for pulling Reg's treasure up from that place, which seems a nod both to her role in bringing Rico out of her coma and the legitimacy of the Abyssal Faith. She asks Miti to be patient, that she does still plan to join her, but not yet. Not yet. Now, what this whole scene accomplishes is similar to Reg's cooking scene. It's a moment of levity to break up the somber mood of the scenes that surround it. It also continues a sequence of demonstrating Nanachi's returning emotional capacity. With Miti's death, she was able to show pure and unfiltered grief. With Rico's cooking, a delight in physical comforts. With Rico's story of the dream, a sense of relief and satisfaction. And with her instigating hijinks in the springs, she shows a joy in interacting with others. Not only is she so clearly enjoying herself, thinking of Miti in her mind and speaking to her does not throw cold water over her enjoyment. She can remember Miti and be happy in the same moment. Step by step, Nanachi is advancing into a more complete person. Her most important step is yet to come, but before that comes the next stage in returning Rico to her own health. There is not a lot I feel I need to say about the scene removing the water shrooms, other than it being another example of the show trying to provoke a visceral reaction in the audience, um, akin to the scene in episode 10. Like mentioned, this stands in contrast to the scene beside it, and the lightheartedness of the hot springs bit makes this surgical violence feel all the more raw, a necessary but brutal step. We know Rico is willing to go through a lot to chase her dreams, but that determination feels all the more real to us when we must watch her suffer so, even losing control and wetting herself in her anguish. This is the unglamorous reality of challenging the abyss. The surgery complete, Rico begins what is probably a long bout of physical therapy. We skip right to her being completely covered with scar tissue, trying her best to force a little movement into her fingers. Her rehab will be visited here and there over the course of the rest of this episode, and though we are never given anything like a timeline, I think we are to understand that many, many weeks pass with the three of them living here. The sight of the scar prompts some shame in Reg, and he apologizes for the unsightly mark he caused. Rico blows him off though, she asked him to do it after all. Even in this brief exchange, the show reinforces how sensitive Reg is and how devil-may-care Rico is by contrast. Yet still, she recognizes his turmoil, and reassures him by drawing him close and revealing that Nanashi told her about his role in the near-death experience. This also confirms that Nanashi really did see herself in their situation, something the show first suggested in her flashback at the beginning of episode 11. Her empathy prompted her to take the risk of exposing herself to cave raiders, that decision not only ended up providing her with a solution to her long quest to release Mitty, it now enables the next crucial step of her life. After noticing Nanachi nearby, Rico officially asks her to join them on their journey. This is something Reg had brought up before, so Nanachi has had time to process the request. And she had already decided before now, it seems, as she gives no hesitation. 
Yes, she will take up a new purpose by joining her fate to theirs, the first new purpose she has assumed for the sake of herself rather than the sake of others since she first listened to Bondaruda in that snowy city so long ago. When Reg hears her answer, he is overjoyed and rushes to embrace her, despite her protest. Rico has no context for this exchange, but we know that this is Nanachi making good on her promise to Reg during the fishing scene. The story of the Nanachi who has been waiting years to die is over, and a different Nanachi with a different story can now begin. Um, I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Nanachi reveals that she comes from the place that they are heading toward, though she will save the story for another time. I don't know if that means that the only way down requires them to go to that strange facility, or if it means that Nanachi has some useful information about Liza. It certainly suggests that they are on a collision course with Bandaruda and his sphere of influence. Anyway, with this matter settled, they have a lot of work to do. The first thing, though, is that they are finally going to make good on their promise from episode 3 and send something to the surface. Whatever the message or items are, they travel by balloon upwards through the layers of the abyss, a reversal of their own journey downwards. Not just in the sense of going up rather than going down, but the balloon's journey replicates many of the same situations. It first encounters one of the flying Monica Jacks in the Great Fault, which even seems to bank and prepare to attack it. However, it sees some Neritantans and goes after them instead, which was just the distracting tactic that Reg and Rico used on their descent. Then it gets spotted by Maruk near the Seeker camp and taken inside, just as they were. Also like them, the package is made stronger for the rest of its journey before being sent on its way. It's even bid farewell in the same place as Maruk and the rest saw Reg and Rico off. Next, it will pass by a corpse weeper and the wind-riding windmills, the first couple of landmarks they encountered after leaving Habo when they were first truly on their own. Finally, it breaks free of the obscuring clouds of the abyss and the music swells triumphantly to match. It will settle down on land at last, having reached the surface. It does not go to the mechanism for catching balloons that we've seen before. Instead, it is found by Nato in exactly the same spot that Rico first found Reg. As Rico said to Nato before they descended, whether it's on the surface or in the far reaches of the cursed netherworld, the two of us are connected to the abyss. This balloon and their thoughts have traveled upward proof of their existence and progress, bringing their words to those they left behind. But their journey is not complete, and over the montage of the balloon's journey, we have seen them preparing to push further. They may have thoughts of home and the people above, but as true cave raiders, their wills are still pointed downward. Now, there's no need to go through all of their prep, um, but I do want to point out one scene, the completion of the new enormous backpack. Reg and Rico are passed out from all the effort that has gone into preparation for the next leg of their journey, yet it is Nanachi who is up late, trying to finish the job. This is actually the last task we see them do, and comes just before the image of the balloon touching down. As much as any other factor, this says to me that Nanachi has internalized their journey as her own, that she would be the one working late right up until the last. 
After these two montages conclude, we see Nato returning to the orphanage with the package in his hands. His and their other friends' thoughts will be on them right now, while our trio's thoughts will be on the next stage of their adventure. But rather than show either of them, we are treated to a series of petals scattered all over Orth. The pattern on them tells us that these are the petals of the eternal fortune flowers, even though the long blue shadows of sunset make them look more pinkish. I can't help but feel that this is meant to make them look a little bit like cherry blossoms. Eternal fortunes stand in a bit for cherry blossoms in this anime, in so much as its frequency in the show matches the frequency with which cherry blossoms show up in Japanese art. If there was doubt about this before though, I think using this imagery of piles of the petals collecting like snowdrift and being blown in the wind rather solidify it. Cherry blossoms are strongly associated with transience and change in the Japanese aesthetic. Actual cherry trees all burst into bloom at the same time at each latitude, which is a very dramatic effect, and yet in a couple of weeks the trees will drop their petals. It's beautiful but fleeting. Or rather, part of its beauty comes from the fact that it is fleeting in the same way that gold isn't precious because it's shiny but because it's rare. This lovely but brief existence then echoes our own lives and the lives of those we love. Dust in the wind, here today but gone tomorrow. The urgency of having a time limit to one's existence increases the intensity of that existence. It isn't eternal or static, it comes and goes. Therefore, this idea is synonymous with the inevitability of change, and so is also associated strongly with endings and beginnings of mortality, of death, but also of birth. The fleeting petals and lives are contrasted against things which change much more slowly. The petals are shown blowing away in the wind while the ancient city of Orth stays in place. Its architectural style seems centuries behind its technological progress, as though while it does change, it changes at a different pace than the people who live in it. Pulling even further back, we have the abyss even more ancient, even more unchanging, and yet not changeless. It may be slower than the lives it contains or consumes, slower even than the city perched on its border, yet it does change. Implicit in this image, then, is that we are approaching a time when the abyss will change indeed. Thus we cut to Nanashi turning out the lights as the three prepare to depart. The side-by-side -side nature of these scenes I think should suggest that Reg and Riko and Nanachi are going to have something to do with changing the abyss. Something will never be the same because they are setting out to plunge ever further. Just before they are about to leave the area where Nanachi has lived for months or years, she pauses a moment and sighs. I suppose she is thinking of everything the place had meant to her. All the pain and frustration and the time she spent slowly becoming a shell of herself. And yet, at the same time, it had become her home, and the place where she and Miti spent the most time together. The place where she kept her promise. There is some sorrow in leaving that behind, of leaving anything that was familiar and safe. And yet, Rico interrupts, calling her to join them on their journey, just as surely as her invitation to join them has interrupted the life Nanachi had settled on. There's a final image of that green little dwelling receding away as they continue. 
This should remind us of the image of Reg and Rico receding away from Maruk and Ozen's cave raiders, as well as the image of them leaving Nato and Shigi when they first descended. I mentioned in the opening how the season breaks neatly into three main parts. With this final scene, each one of those parts ends in a similar way, with our main characters beginning the next leg of their journey, watching as they leave people and places behind. It's been Reg and Rico looking every time, and now as Nanachi joins them, she becomes the one watching as she leaves someone behind her. She too now experiences the mixed emotions that Reg and Rico did on their earlier departures. And the emotions are mixed for her. Nanachi is leaving the last days of her time with Miti behind, and is heading back towards the nightmare she once escaped. But this journey is actually something else, too. Way, way back, the earliest of all her moments we've seen, she was reading about the Abyss and dreaming of going there, to the bottom of the world. Her existence was plainly miserable, cold, dirty, absent of friends, but a street orphan who eats literal garbage but fishes out books and learns to read them? That's a dreamer. That's someone with hope, someone who believes that there can be something better. For a time, the Abyss was that beacon of hope, like some enchanted land out of a storybook, tantalizing in part because it was so impossibly distant. Once she actually got to go, though, the dream became nightmare. She gained a treasure that she promptly lost in a most horrific way. She was changed physically, no longer really human, and then she slowly lost any desire to live at all, and yet was still trapped by a final elusive task. And yet, as she joins her purpose to Reg and Rico's own, the abyss and what it represents changes for her. For the first time in a long time, the bottom of the world offers something she finds worth striving toward. That poor, beaten-down soul with her meager rags has taken the long way around, but some small flicker of that desire she once had has been rekindled. This is all a second chance to make her reality match that tiny dream she once carried in her heart. There is a little stinger right at the end. We see a huge bank of bulbs bearing individual labels, pausing over one that is off, and then Bandurud's voice telling us that her signature has disappeared. He congratulates Nanachi on finally managing to do it, which suggests that the signature in question referred to Miti. It is off now because Miti has died, and somehow Badarud's system can keep up with this even though they were a layer away. The terrible implication here is that all of these bulbs correspond to some experimental being. Maybe they are in the facility, maybe they are out in the wild, maybe all of them are hollows, or maybe there is a whole host of other creatures experimented upon. Miti's horror is not singular, we are meant to understand. It also lets us know that experiments continue in that place, that some things have not changed at all. It's the same old Bandarud, same crazy outfit, same inflected voice, same giant segmented tail. Wait, giant segmented tail? I take it back, some things have changed. It would appear Bandarud's experiments are not limited only to hapless orphans, but we will get no more insight into what has been happening here. Instead, we conclude with Bandarudu stating his desire to see Nanachi once more, as the ominous Dolly Zoom emphasizes his ever-unreadable expression. We have not heard the last of this one. 
So with our walkthrough behind us, it's now time to look at our overview analysis sections. First up will be goals and then conflicts. In the finale to an entire story, you can look at character goals and conclude whether they are met, changed, or left unfulfilled, and look backward to see how that informs their character journey, and often with some thematic pattern will be filled in as well. The same goes for conflicts, which should either have all been resolved or altered by the end, or else they are actually part of the setting rather than an in-story conflict. However, this episode is not the finale to the whole story, only to the season. Most of these we have tracked should be assumed to continue into whatever comes next, creating continuity between our characters and their world. Thus, for these two sections at least, we will treat it the same as any episode. First up is one of our main driving forces, Rico's goal of conquering the Abyss. Uh, her injury has not derailed this, and her rehabilitation by the end puts her back in the driver's seat for the story, something I raised some questions about last time. We can see now that putting Rico narratively offstage allowed Nanachi space to emerge into our story and rapidly become a fully realized character. But Reg is the one who got to know her, solve her life's one desire, and convince her to keep living. Reg is currently the personality that connects the group together, and I think he has taken a step toward being the central character over Rico. It's not a contest or anything, but he is the only character whose thoughts we hear with regularity, and he is the only character with lines and significant screen time in every episode. For now though, Rico's two main goals are the driving force, and the addition of Nanachi to their group gives this one an enormous boost. Rico and Nanachi both have a wealth of knowledge about the Abyss, but as we have descended, Rico's understanding grew smaller in scope and reliability with every step into the less familiar levels. By contrast, Nanachi has been living down here and lower for some time, yet probably has very little understanding of the levels above. It's almost like the two sets of their knowledge overlap to cover the Abyss as a whole, at least the knowable parts. The party is unquestionably stronger, and this goal more likely to be advanced. Nanachi's addition also boosts the success of the other driving goal, Find Eliza. Quite aside from her increasing their chances of surviving and exploring, there is some suggestion that Nanachi may have information related to Liza or her activities. It's still unclear if Nanachi recognized Liza's whistle as Liza's, or simply as a white whistle, but thanks to Reg, she knows that Rico is down here looking for her mother. When Nanachi agrees to come with them, she immediately states that she comes from the place they are heading toward. I assume this means the facility, and if looking for Liza means going to that facility, and Nanachi knows it, then it follows that Nanachi knows either something directly about her mother, or where to look for more information. Additionally, for this goal is our scene which pretty much confirms that Liza and Reg traveled together for a time, and so further memories from Reg are likely to yield a clue at some point or another. That parlays into the next goal that Reg and Rico share, which is uncovering Reg's connection to the Abyss, and in so doing, uncovering his past. The memory he has of traveling with Liza is an obvious clue. It's something we already expected from other contexts, so we should expect Reg to recognize the significance. However, 
So far, we have not seen him bring any of these memories and their possible connection to Liza up with Rico. I know Rico was unconscious when the last two happened, so maybe this is a case of simply prioritizing telling other parts of the story right now. Uh, maybe this conversation is up next, as Reg is understandably more focused on Rico and her recovery than his own mystery. But if he is holding information about Liza back from Rico, then we will have to start wondering why. Another detail that fills in Reg's mystery is Nanachi's description of the Sparagmos relic, and the whole reason they assume it will succeed in releasing Miti is its similarity to his incinerator. This means that there is at least one relic that must originate from the same technology as Reg, and it's in Bondarud's possession. Where did he find it? Are there others like it? Or like the other relics that comprise his body? Remember that Ozen made a comment about never having seen a weapon like Incinerator before. What else does Bondaruda or that facility have that is mysterious even to other White Whistles? What else is in there that may shed light on Reg and his origin? If they are indeed headed right for that place, then this may end up advancing this goal quite by happenstance. And I've got more on that in speculation. Now, heading to that facility does seem counter to another shared goal of Reg and Rico's, um, which is to evade capture. Ozen represented guild authority, but made a decision to break from what she probably was supposed to do, and did not detain and return Reg and Rico for breaking the rules. They had no way to know that she had some long-ago promise to Liza about sending Rico onto her, or that Ozen's loyalty to Liza is stronger than her loyalty to the guild. Bondaruda represents guild authority as well. As we discussed in the walkthrough, the fact that the infrastructure exists to have secretly transported all of those orphans to the fifth level heavily implies that the guild endorses some of what he is up to. However, the guild is not monolithic, as the disagreement Nanachi overheard demonstrates. If Reg and Rico find themselves under Bondarud's power, will his position as guild representative mean that he captures them to return to the surface, or at least try? Or will he instead want to experiment on them, especially Reg, leading to the need for Bondarud to hide their existence from the Black Whistles who are not part of his faction? Remember, Ozen gave them blue whistles at the Seeker camp to likewise hide them from any incidental contact with other raiders, and then sent them away before a big expedition was set to arrive. There might indeed be more than one power in that facility, but Reg and Rico, and especially Nanachi, should be wary of all of them. Nanachi's addition should make the whole group even more shy about crossing other cave raiders. However, the potential to exploit the differences between raider factions may work out for them in a pinch. This need to evade capture will also inform Reg's goal of protecting Rico. As we've talked about before, the loss of his memories means Reg doesn't know his original purpose in coming to the surface. In the absence of any other way to guide his actions, he has hitched his wagon to Rico and made protecting and supporting her his defining motivation. This goal gets pushed and pulled several ways this episode. The first is that I think it is expanded to now include Nanachi. That heartbreaking fishing scene is not just a demonstration of how much Reg wants Nanachi to live on. Um, interjecting his will over her own, making her promise not to kill herself, is Reg assuming some responsibility for her fate as well. 
I'm not sure he would choose Nanachi over Riko if somehow such a choice arose, but I'm positive he would put himself in harm's way for her sake going forward. Another moment relevant to this goal was Riko's reassurance near the very end. As we said in a previous episode, it looks like Reg essentially failed at this goal with the Orb Piercer incident. Certainly he has felt like a failure ever since. Credit Rico for understanding how important it is for her to assuage his self-loathing and lowered confidence. Reg has shown indecision in the heat of the moment several times, as we've pointed out, and the last thing this team needs is Reg undergoing a crisis of faith. While Rico's words don't undo the scar on her arm or the ordeal she went through, taking the blame away from him will go a long way towards keeping his inner turmoil from getting worse. To then further show her appreciation for Reg's actions and his emotional response will heal him further. In fact, she credits his reaction with saving her, at least in part. Nanachi's intervention is the real thing that prevents her death, but it was Nanachi seeing herself in Reg, seeing his helpless desperation over the fate of his friend, that caused her to emerge from hiding and lend a hand. If Reg doesn't go to pieces in that situation, does Nanachi ever step up to aid them? Maybe not, right? I'm not sure this would have occurred to Reg, but Rico bringing it up at that point, in the context of his attempt to apologize, makes the causal link plain. Your failure was not as total as you believe. You did save me. Finally, we might have some overlap with Reg's unknown goal, so I'll go ahead and include it here. Uh, but we wondered long ago if the reason Reg came up to the surface in the first place was related to Liza that she sent him up or he was helping her carry out some tasks to help her or fulfill a promise or something like that. This is still unknown, but the memory he has of her this time doesn't just connect them further, it paints Liza in something of a caretaker role toward Reg, or at least someone friendly who is also in charge of their agenda. I feel like this increases the likelihood that Reg climbed to the surface because of something Liza wanted. Since he was there at the moment Rico needed help with the Crimson Splitjaw, I had guessed in the past that he might have been looking for her or watching her in the first place. So, it may turn out that Reg's unknown goal will turn out to be this Protect Rico goal all along. Probably slightly more complex than that, but somehow I feel like we aren't going to get to the fifth level and have Reg suddenly remember that, oh, I was actually supposed to bring Leader down all along. I'll be right back. Next up then, Rico's goal of communicating to the surface. I'm assuming that Reg told her that he sent word via the black whistle that he saved, but I suppose that is different than sending a message yourself. This was almost the last thing Rico promised as she said goodbye to her closest friends. So having her make good on this goal right as the season ends helps draw a parallel between that first act of pushing off into the mysterious void, leaving friends behind, and their next act of pushing off from the fourth level with a new member of their team who is also leaving a friend behind. Considering all the thematic stress on the unknown, which we'll talk about at length, I find it oddly appropriate that what they sent on so far a journey remains something unknown to us in the audience. Now there are new goals to add, even though we may never come back to tracking them. Um, these come from the two ongoing characters who got filled in considerably, Nanachi and Bandarud. 
we learn that Nanachi originally had a goal to see the bottom of the world, or at least a desire that became a goal once Bandaruda made his offer. Despite actually being transported to the fifth level, this ceased to inform Nanachi's purpose after she and Miti were forced into their transformation. All of her will was bent on Miti from then on. We talked about how Reg rightly feared she had no purpose on the other side of releasing her, and certainly the bottom of the world held little interest compared to fulfilling that responsibility. With that behind, and her gradual acceptance of living on, this original but dormant goal floats back to the surface. That little orphan dreamer may still be in there somewhere. I don't think it's her top goal or anything, but it is probably easier to convince her to go lower than to go to the surface. Thus, what is probably her real primary goal now is fixing her purpose to Rico's just as surely as Reg has, even if it's only for Reg's sake. This may have only begun as gratitude and only out of her promise not to take her own life, but I think Nanachi will increasingly see herself as one of this group. Think about how rapidly she has accepted Rico after Miti's death, and how much the story of the dream probably meant to her, or her delight in watching over the two of them in the hot springs. This will increasingly become part of her identity, and aiding them is probably her main driving purpose for now. Another goal of Nanachi's is basically put aside for that last one, which is to be reunited to Miti. As she says when watching them in the springs, she hopes Miti can wait for her a little bit longer. Reg's intervention has stopped her from actively pursuing this goal, but the fact that death holds some appeal for Nanachi may change the context of a future encounter. Say, for example, that she can save Reg or Rico, but at the cost of her own life. A tough choice for the audience to watch if we have become attached to them all, but to Nanachi, the sting of death is lessened by the fulfillment of this final goal. We should expect her to be more cavalier with her life than, say, Rico, because death holds an appeal of its own. Should a day come when Nanachi leaves us, her parting will be bittersweet rather than only bitter if we remember this ultimate desire to follow Miti to wherever souls go. Lastly, I want to point something out that is not expressly a goal for Nanachi. Um, nothing indicates this desire, so I haven't written it up here. But should we assume that Nanachi has a bit of a score to settle with Bandarud? Obviously, until now, the plan has been to get away and keep her head down, but now she's traveling with someone, packing a weapon like Incinerator, and they're headed right toward him. I feel like if someone did that to me and my only friend, the thought might cross my mind. That she has never expressed any notion of vengeance seems like it could be significant in retrospect, but it could be lack of opportunity rather than desire, and may yet come up in the future. Certainly, she seemed to enjoy the idea that Reg was going to beat up the Orb Piercer when that all happened. Now, while Nanachi's feelings on Bandaruda are a bit unclear, uh, he adds a goal with the last line of our series by saying that he would very much like to see Nanachi again. If rumor of her reaches him, we have to assume that he would expend some effort to bring her back into his power. Since it turns out he was tracking Miti and correctly deduces what has happened, he is like to be on guard for any news of Nanachi's whereabouts. Now, why this would matter to him forms our final new goal. Bandaruda has an unknown goal. 
He grandstanded about driving back the darkness from this chasm when he explained the experiment to Nanachi and Miti. Thus, I think this goal is at least in part about pushing further into the abyss, with darkness here probably the darkness of ignorance. Bondaruda checks a lot of boxes of the mad scientist character archetype, someone for whom the pursuit of understanding is a higher priority than ethical considerations. But outside of an abstract idea of pushing further into the abyss, what drives him in particular is unknown. What does he hope to accomplish at the end of his discoveries, or to what end are they to be directed? All cave raiders want to push further, so that doesn't help us understand him any more than knowing he is a white whistle. Rico and Nanachi are also driven to learn about the abyss, but we also know of other goals of theirs for which their pursuit of knowledge is supportive. What Bondaruda would do if he can push further or discover more is still mysterious, so this goal will remain unknown for now. The idea of the abyss as representative of the unknown is something we've talked about a lot, and we will revisit it in theme with Bondaruda as a new addition. But first, we have our section on conflicts. First of all, in conflicts, we resolved what I called the meaty problem. I could never have guessed that this would be solved so appropriately after last episode. We spoke about how Reg would likely face an ethical dilemma, that his characterization suggested he would balk at the idea of taking the life of an innocent. The whole reason it even makes a good cliffhanger is because we know Reg will be conflicted. I even wondered if the complication of Nanachi holding Rico's life in the balance would inform his decision-making. Thus, when Nanachi openly stated that she would continue to take care of Rico regardless, the crisis shifts back to Reg's own sense of ethics. There is no leveraging him toward a decision he wouldn't otherwise make. And so, almost the first two-thirds of this finale centers around Reg's choice and what goes into that choice. The thing he needs the most is the full context of what Nanachi is asking, which prompts her to give the entire backstory of Miti and herself, why they are hollows, how she has tried to succeed on her own, and why she believes Reg represents their last chance. It's a way more complex situation than a simple matter of Nanachi not wanting to be the one to pull the trigger. For Nanachi, finding a way to end Miti's miserable existence is the ultimate act of friendship. Reg, though, is trying to prevent death coming to his friend. Moving Reg to a place where he can see Miti's death the same way that Nanachi does is the first step to resolve this crisis. But beyond that, Reg's growing attachment to Nanachi means he understands how much the journey to this point has affected her. He intuits, correctly, that Nanachi intends to follow Miti in death. Thus, the same instinct that makes him not want to take Miti's life makes him hesitate about creating a situation where Nanachi's life will end as well. So, the second part of solving this crisis is Reg being convinced that he is not ending both of their lives by granting her wish. That fishing scene and Nanachi's promise thus represent the moment that the main driving conflict of this episode comes to its head. It's quite the subdued scene for what is arguably the narrative climax of the finale. Beyond this conflict wrapping up, we have a few conflicts which continue with a little alteration. Reg and Rico as fugitives still gives them a reason to look over their shoulder and avoid other cave raiders. 
the addition of Nanashi to the team just makes this situation worse, because even isolated cave raiders, who might have no idea that Reg and Rico are on the run, will have their interest piqued by someone like Nanachi in their midst. They're an even more conspicuous team than they were before. We also have the conflict of Reg's resurfacing memories. Remember, this is a conflict because we don't know the content of these memories or how they will affect Reg's behavior. This time, we get the memory which further confirms a link between him and Liza. This would seem to only be a good thing on the surface. They are looking for Liza. Reg's memories contain some information about Liza. What's not to like? But it's the memories we haven't seen that may turn out to take the story in an unexpected direction. After all, why even use Amnesia as a plot device if it will have no bearing on the story? How exactly this might throw them for a loop in the future, I can't guess exactly, but it may be related to a conflict we talked about last time, that their goals or assumptions may need to be questioned. One of the things I wondered was if our impression of Liza might be inaccurate, that the folk hero version of her that Rico and the rest of Orth know might be something of an idealization. After all, Ozen turned out to be unlike what they expected, and the truth of Bandaruda is quite horrific. Is it naive to keep believing Liza will be the one exception? I'm still assuming that she is the one narrating, but think about the tone of those narrations compared to the other information we have about her temperament. It's a bit conflicting, no? And so Reg's memories returning might paint a different picture of her, and he will then have the unenviable decision about what to share with Rico. The other things we wondered about in discussing this conflict last time was how neutral or benevolent the guild itself actually is. We even wondered if there might be awful things going on in the Abyss with their blessing. I don't know if Bondarud's research has their open endorsement exactly, but as I suggested earlier, it's hard to believe he could be moving dozens of children into the depths without them being aware. The discrepancy in priorities we saw way back in the orphanage between leader and director may be echoed in the members of the guild at large. Building off of that, we have the other White Whistles conflict. Bondruda has definitely turned out to be an antagonistic force, and it's a sure bet that that's not over. Maybe he will be the only one to show up, but Ozen did mention two others somewhere below. Is Bondruda the exception? Or are these others capable of their own brand of terrible behavior? We definitely no longer assume that our White Whistles are only heroes. They, of course, are not the only source of potential danger. Quite apart from the beasts of the Abyss that have held the group up for four episodes, we have the increasing risk of madness. I don't think it's ever been specified where exactly the warped sense of time begins in the Abyss, but we have to expect it happens at least by the fifth level, considering people who have returned have experienced it. It may not matter at all if you don't actually return to the surface, but I think we should keep in mind this background bit of weirdness. It's one more curveball the Abyss has to throw at them. The last existing conflict was Rico's physical state. Her life is no longer in the balance, but even after her long rehabilitation sequence, it would seem she is not 100%. Reg may do the heavy lifting around here, but showing us that Rico can't really grip with that hand seems like the kind of thing that may come back up. So let's add some new conflicts too. 
Uh, Bondaruda is no longer just a potential threat we know little of. Though we don't understand all of what drives him, his interest in Nanachi will give him reason to proactively interfere with them should he ever catch wind of their location. The Stinger practically guarantees that he will affect their course. While it is Nanachi and probably his own curiosity of how she dealt with Miti that will move him at first, that same curiosity will rise to a fever pitch if he ever gets a load of Reg. It's already been foreshadowed for us that Reg is basically the most valuable collection of relics any of them have seen. We have to expect that to come back into the story in some way, and Bondarud's version of a mad scientist act combines it nicely with Nanachi's own story. But Bondarud might also be a threat in an indirect way, which is the last thing we will add. Bondarud and company affecting the abyss. When Nanachi and Miti were dropped into the sixth level, they were swarmed by a host of hollows, presumably the other experiments from Bondarud. I don't know that he is just turning them loose down there or anything, but we know he is doing experimentation on an industrial scale just by that final view of those indicator lights. Since he is apparently not above experimenting on himself, I don't think it's a stretch that he wouldn't sweat unintended consequences by fooling with the abyss around them. I don't really think he's the only cave raider that fits that description either, um, but down here with less traffic and oversight, I could see his efforts fundamentally changing the ecosystem of the levels that our trio is heading toward. Thus, even the things they know and are prepared for may prove little aid. This may not be a conflict at all, because I am reaching too far, but I want to consider that Bondarud's effect on their journey may not be limited to the things he does on purpose. The Abyss or its residents may be different because of him. Granted, that could potentially work in their favor, but just like with Reg's memories, the unknown is always a potential threat. We have plenty to talk about when it comes to the unknown, so let us move on to theme. As mentioned in the opening, I overcorrected when I tried to pare down our themes, restricting them to four super categories and then adding basically nothing new from then on. While most of the thematic elements we've discussed did have a lot of overlap and so benefited from the tighter characterization, there are some patterns that I have neglected to comment upon in the meantime. And perhaps worse, I didn't go looking for new patterns, which is a poor analysis philosophy. There should never be a point in analyzing a work when you say to yourself, oh yeah, I've got it all figured out. While that wasn't my intention, it's certainly been the result. This section will thus be an attempt to set this right. Of course, there is no way I have extracted everything, but as it's often easier to discern patterns when you have the entire work to pull from, this will be a long section, unsurprisingly. A lot of these could make their own standalone videos, which might be something I try someday, um, but there would be some redundancy between videos due to how many themes are interwoven or share context. Um, and I can avoid that problem here. So to make this section shorter and flow better, the themes are arranged in an order that lets them transition into one another and build off of previous ideas, rather than having each theme stand alone with no outside context needed. Skipping around might be confusing, but it's in the service of making the overall video shorter, and it needs all the help it can get. 
You should remember that I use theme as a bit of a catch-all term for thematic elements, and not as the strict idea of a central theme. I don't really ascribe to the idea of a central theme, or even a central conflict, for anything more complicated than a sonnet. More dominant or prominent, more frequent, fine, but stories usually have a lot going on. Thus, this section is a collection of all the patterns which suggest a layer of meaning or subtext that I find interesting enough to explore, whether they are symbols or metaphors, motifs or arc words, or a grand clash of opposing ideals. So let us begin by talking about tensions. A lot of stories, characters, and themes are built around tensions or contrasts between opposing forces and ideas. It's a sense of something unresolved that draws us forward and fills us with anticipation, and then fills us with satisfaction when the tension is resolved, or makes the gears of our mind spin when they are deliberately still left unresolved, or even further unresolved. Narrative tension is something we're pretty familiar with already. A story described as a page-turner or ending as a cliffhanger are referring to the unfinished narrative tension that makes the audience want to know what happens next. Characterization has its own tension. For the forces inside and outside a particular character, and those between characters, make us aware of the differences between them and how they might change over time, or wonder how they will react when presented with a decision. Thematic tension, then, is presenting two ideas, concepts, or even patterns that are both present in a work, yet contrast each other in some way. Often this is two big ideas that are vying for supremacy, or visibility, or just legitimacy inside the story. The way the story is told can support one against the other, or change from supporting one to the other over time, or present both with their own claim to legitimacy, leaving them still in contest by the end. It's all in what the storyteller is trying to say with their work, or what questions they want the audience to ponder. A lot of the themes that fall into this broad category are of the versus kind, such as nature versus artifice, or tradition versus progress. Sometimes a work as a whole will seem to favor one side, or sometimes different characters or story sections will favor one, with other characters or sections favoring another. One of our existing theme categories matches this description, the ends versus means theme. We spoke about this theme at length last video, as I believed Reg's response to the meaty problem represented a personal struggle with this thematic tension. It echoes a character tension for him. I pointed out that Rico is more goal-driven than he is, and is willing to entertain a wider array of means towards whatever end she is pursuing. Reg, without a driving goal aside from supporting Rico, becomes more means-focused instead. Further, we talked about how this difference might even be a key part of why some people can thrive in the abyss and others cannot. It's a hostile and unforgiving place, and if you balk at every unpleasant means that comes your way, you may never reach the ends that you desire. Success in the abyss does not depend on how you make your way, just whether or not you actually make your way. Back up top, in Orth, in the orphanage, in society in general, Maybe it matters a lot how you go about pursuing what you want, but down here, not so much. Thus, while Reg supports the idea of making things better for Miti and Nanachi, he's skeptical that killing Miti is the best means to that end. 
Are you sure she isn't happy? Are you sure she can't be saved? Another character in the same position might respond differently. Yes, it's unfortunate that death is the only release for Miti, but her release is the important thing. So whether it's Nanachi poisoning her or Reg incinerating her, it's best that we see it through. It's important to realize that the ends here is not killing Miti, with Reg upset that the means are him using incinerator. Nanachi's goal isn't to kill Miti, it's to free Miti's soul from a possible eternity of pain. That is the ends, and the only thing Nanachi is sure will accomplish it is killing her. Nanachi's challenge is convincing Reg that death is the only possible way to free Miti. It's not a question of them agreeing that Miti needs to die, and them quibbling over whether or not Reg needs to be involved. Reg understands after her story why it has to be him. But he also has a consideration of what will happen to Nanachi if this end is accomplished by these means. If they can free Miti without sending her from this world, then Nanachi will not lose her reason to keep going. If he can convince Nanachi that letting Miti live on in this state is fine, and that her life is not something she needs to be freed from, then she will also not lose her reason to live. Like I said last time, there are no bad actors here. It's Reg coming to understand why Nanachi believes that Miti's death is the only answer that shifts him to agreement. However, while someone more ends-focused might have agreed earlier, it's just the way Reg wrestles and molds the situation over that makes him realize Nanachi will try to follow Miti in death. His concern about the way they pursue a solution enables him to understand Nanachi and then leverage that understanding to make her promise not to take her own life. Someone more ends-focused may have missed that entirely. Nanachi actually shifts in her relation to ends or means during the story leading up to Reg's involvement. She understands that she needs to kill Miti, but early on is broken up and horrified by putting her through pain. The awfulness of the means really affects her despite her dedication to the end goal. Over time, though, that end is more important, and she starts experimenting on doomed cave raiders and slowly crushes down her own emotional response. She even asks Reg without giving him the backstory first, later realizing how surprising that must have been and apologizing. This indicates how much more important the goal has become over how she achieves it. But I think it's important to point out that she did not shift all the way to disregarding the means entirely. She could have tried to leverage Rico's life for Miti's death. Who cares if Reg hates her if she gets what she wants? Who cares if she lets Rico die if she doesn't? But she does not fully abandon the notion that the means matter in their own way. As I said last time, you can often understand a lot about a character in the moment when the ends that they want and the means they use to pursue them come into conflict. Which way they choose is often a watershed point in their characterization, and I think that holds true for Nanachi. Even though she is ends-focused, she stops short of forcing others to share her burden, and that tells us a lot about her. Now, I don't want to imply that means-focused people are automatically moral, and ends-focused people automatically amoral or immoral. It's just that people with strong goals that they prioritize are more likely to be ends-focused. Nanachi and Riko both had powerful motivations, freeing Miti and finding Liza, 
and this makes them entertain solutions that will seem extreme or surprising to others. But that doesn't mean they would do absolutely anything toward these goals. Nanachi stops short of coercing Reg, and Rico's hallucination of returning to the surface with Liza went sour for her when she realized that she had lost Reg along the way. But we do have some more extreme ends justify the means types in our story. Ozen illustrates how overmatched they are by traumatizing Reg and Rico and even Maruk. That goal overrode any notion of tact. Her ends ultimately ended up being positive and supportive in their own way, but man, what a choice of means. Going even further though, we have Bandarud. We don't know his ends other than a general desire for knowledge and discovery, but it's safe to say he has very few hang-ups about the means he employs to accomplish this. That said, it's important to note that being ends-focused like this, um, if we are right on that reading, suggests that the means are not a goal of their own. Um, what I'm saying is that I don't think he delights in killing or distorting orphans, or taking perverse pleasure in the suffering of others. If he could accomplish the same things without doing a single morally objectionable thing, he might very well do so. It's just that the details of the means take no priority over the ends that they accomplish. If that strange tale, or whatever it is on him at the end, represents experiments he's run on himself, then it will simply reinforce how strongly he comes down on the ends side of this tension. I actually think that, in general, those who succeed in the Abyss will trend that way, something we talked about last time. Reg is the real anomaly in all this, especially for being someone who is so physically well-suited to the place. This leads to another pattern we have noted before, which is that our characters are often paired with offsetting personalities. We discussed this a great deal with Reg and Rico already, not just in the ends versus means focus between them, but in their temperaments and whether they tend to be proactive or reactive. Rico has the drive and audacious optimism to have dared this whole journey to begin with, yet is an inexperienced 12-year-old girl. Reg came from the Abyss, and might as well be designed to thrive there, yet he is hesitant and easily thrustered. She has a wealth of knowledge, while he doesn't even know his own name. We also discussed in the middle of the series the way Ozen and Maruk almost seemed like two halves of a person. Each seems to embody or even exaggerate an aspect that the other lacks or opposes, in everything from hospitality to gender aesthetics. Now that we've seen Nanachi and Miti's backstory, we understand that this pattern runs throughout. Miti was the optimistic, cheerful, and outgoing one, while Nanachi was withdrawn and sedate and given to worry. Miti is presented as the social extrovert, and Nanachi as the studious introvert. Their difference in temperament actually reminds me a bit of another set of offsetting personalities, Ozen and Liza, at least during the interactions that we have gotten to see. Now, not every pair is simply a reiteration of a different pair. For example, Rico and Nanachi have different temperaments, yet are both the scholar in their grouping. But the frequency of this invites us to compare the group dynamics against one another. That had plot significance when it came to Nanachi feeling empathy with Rig and Rico, and so stepping out to help them. This may have even further meaning for us if we learn more about Ozen and Liza's past, or even when Reg remembers more about his own pairing with Liza versus his pairing with Rico. If nothing else, 
Having personalities paired like this implies that our main pair of Reg and Rico will either succeed together or fail together. Even though the pairs of Ozen, Liza, and Nanachi, Miti have split apart for good reason, there is a sense of regret that they couldn't still be together in the same way. Thus, beyond the desire Reg and Rico have to be together as a result of their characterizations, there is some thematic emphasis on keeping their offsetting personalities together. Right at the beginning of the walkthrough, I talked about the music for this series, and I mentioned we would talk more about the score in theme. One section will be about the piece I referenced then, the Underground River song, um, and that one will be later. Right now, while we are still talking about tensions though, I want to examine the series' use of soundtrack dissonance. Way back at the beginning of the series, I pointed out that an upbeat credit song does not guarantee an upbeat series, and I even cited Madoka Magica's opening theme as an example. Granted, the words and imagery for that opening subverted the cheerful nature of the music itself, but the effect as the series went along was that the increasing darkness of the narrative contrasted more and more with the music and its mood. We have something very similar in Maiden Abyss, especially with the end credits. Not only are the lyrics and tone of that piece happy and innocent, the art style is intentionally reminiscent of storybook illustrations, or even the puppet show we saw back in episode 2. If you presented those credits to someone with no other knowledge of the series, they would form a certain notion of the whole thing, right? And they would guess plenty of it correctly. It looks like a journey down into a kind of lost world, there are encounters with various creatures and companions along the way, and fields of white flowers somehow figure into the whole thing. Yet the impression of the tone of the series would be wildly wrong, in spite of grasping a lot about the substance of the narrative. We are first presented with this in-credit sequence back in episode 2, immediately after Riko sees her mother's notes and what she sees as an invitation to follow after her. At that moment then, it's like we are being given a sneak peek at the rest of the story that will unfold for us, and it presents a certain cheery and fanciful tone to go with it. Expectations have been created for us, and at that moment, the characters themselves have a similarly optimistic belief about how things will go. The audience and the characters and the song are all on the same page. As the story goes along though, things have looked more and more grim. This last arc especially demonstrates how misplaced their optimism and how insufficient their sense of danger. The end credits actually become a kind of mood whiplash down the stretch, standing in juxtaposition to the scenes just before. Yet, creating this sense of dissonance in the audience is intentional. Every time the episode ends and clashes with the soundtrack, we are reminded of how far we have come. The credit sequence that seemed appropriately matched to how we and the characters felt in episode 2 is now jarringly out of place. The separation between its mood and the episode's mood widens each time, and emphasizes the widening gulf between how we thought things would go and how they actually went. That tension, which we might call naivete versus reality, is one of the most common patterns in our next theme, World of Children. The whole reason a story told with the World of Children framing works is because of children's inherent lack of experience. They are more likely to be naive than realistic, and so most stories employing this theme 
eventually involve an upsetting of their worldview with a hard dose of reality. World of Children was in full effect during the first part of Nanachi's backstory. The Abyss is a famously dangerous but lucrative land of wonder. So much so that those who succeed enough to join the ranks of the White Whistles are internationally recognizable for overcoming its obstacles. Any number of qualified and highly trained adults strive against it without succeeding. So, if someone shows up trying to recruit children with uh, no training or experience to help them explore the abyss, well that should elicit some raised eyebrows. Most adults would realize how suspicious that sounded. Of course, this is exactly why recruiting guinea pigs from among orphans works. Partially because no one with a wider worldview is looking out for them or would miss them, and partially because the children themselves don't know enough to be skeptical. They are naive about the world and the people in it. This isn't about being sheltered either. It's not like Nanachi had some idyllic existence, and she already had an understanding of the world beyond her situation due to her reading. But what she and the rest lacked was experience with people like Bondarud, who can appear to be helpful and kind, and yet act in a way that harms. Back in the walkthrough, I further talked about how none of the children were alarmed by being led out of the holding area one by one with no one returning. That is setting off alarm bells in the audience's mind, but the children are too naive to suspect anything could be amiss. Of course, the burned hand teaches best. After that, advice about fire goes to the heart. Nanachi has not only ceased to be naive about the horrors of the abyss, and the monstrous things cave raiders are capable of, she internalizes this as another hallmark of World of Children, which is distrust of authority. Sometimes distrusting or avoiding authority arises because the kids are trying to hide something they know they would get in trouble for doing. This was the case for Rico and Nato and Shiggy with Hiding Rig. We in the audience know that it's not unreasonable for the orphanage to prohibit bringing strangers inside, but something that often happens with a World of Children's story is that the kids can't understand the why of the rules which restrain them. Sneaking Reg in and sneaking Miti out are both things that the kids in our story do in defiance of authority. And while we in the audience can tell the difference between those two cases, the children carrying them out may see them the same way. It becomes us versus them for situations minor and major alike. In story, then, that means that Nanachi's new distrust of cave raiders, thanks to Bonderuda, has probably extended to every other one she's run across. It probably would have applied to Rico and Reg if she hadn't seen her own situation reflected in theirs. Her lack of experience with cave raiders let her be duped by Bonderuda, but that same lack of experience then causes her to overcorrect and assume the worst of all cave raiders, something we still saw present in her interaction with Reg and the Black Whistle. With time and a wider exposure to more of them, she would undoubtedly adopt a more sophisticated understanding. But it's that very lack of that which makes it a world of children's story and makes it turn the way it does. Certainly, she isn't alone in a greater understanding thanks to unpleasant experiences. Rico now understands all too well the limits of her knowledge and the consequences of those limits. One hopes she will be a touch less naive about abyssal creatures in the future. Likewise, Reg has now had to go through the awful internal struggle brought on by the meaty problem. 
their journey is no longer as simple for him as following and protecting Rico. The reality of morally gray choices has punched him right in the gut. The shine is off for our trio, but that actually improves their chances going forward. One of the signposts of growing up, after all, is this loss of innocence about the way of the world. Now, the reason Reg and Rico and Nanachi and probably Miti have overlap in their upbringing is that they all come from orphanages. I noted way back that having children whose parents were presumably lost in the abyss, then themselves sent into the abyss, seemed a little sketchy. It's one of the first things that made us question the morality of the guild, despite positive representation like Leader and Habo. Now that we know Nanachi and probably Miti are also orphans, we have a bit of a pattern. Rico is not an orphan, but is effectively one, while it's hard to guess uh, how to describe Reg's actual parentage. But all four of them have this in common. They are children living on the outside of the inclusive family unit that makes up the major subdivision of society. This can make them rudderless or restless, but it seems to leave all of them feeling like they are missing something, like they are misplaced in their own lives. Thus, in my mind, I draw a parallel between the multiple instances of orphanages and something Habo said to himself when he saw Reg and Rico off for the last time. He thinks, at any rate, we're all just the Netherworld's lost children. He knew that sooner or later a day would come when Rico would head out for the Abyss and Liza. Thus, he thinks of that drive to plunge in as something innate to them, that they are the Abyss's lost children. It's like the Abyss itself is their home, their parents, their family. He is including himself, and probably all cave raiders, in this assessment. When they are on the surface, it's like they are orphans. They are lost and out of place. They are not where they belong. They are homeless, wanderers. Habo's wife might not understand the appeal of him or for Rico to dream of going ever deeper, but they understand each other perfectly. They are the sort who wonder what is on the other side of the horizon. It's only in surrendering to the pool of the abyss that they feel at home. Inside its depths, they have the opportunity to feel a little less lost, maybe even one day feeling as though they are found. This draw they feel, this longing, is one of the most dominant patterns in the series, and we have been including it in the theme we call the gravity of the unknown. This category did double duty for us, stressing both the pull that the unknown had on many of our characters, which is the meaning of gravity that means the physical force, as well as the seriousness and importance of the unknown, which is the meaning of gravity that means significance. We collapsed a lot of themes into this one way back when. For our finale then, we are going to expand it back out a bit. First, let's talk a bit about the notion of longing. To long for something is to desire it, to yearn for it. It's not something someone just likes or be glad for, but something with the power to move them, to inspire goals around which they construct a purpose. This is why we chose the comparison with gravity. Gravity pulls you toward whatever is generating it constantly and irresistibly. You don't choose to fall toward Earth. It's not the kind of thing you opt for some days and not others. Its pull is constant, and I think, too, is this series' notion of longing. Last episode, Nachi directly cited it as why cave raiders are able to deal with creatures that can effectively see into the future. In that case, their drive becomes the solution to the very problem the longing causes. 
It is desire wed to determination, and yet it is treated as something they cannot really help. In fact, it's more like a sickness or compulsion at times. We talked about how last episode's opening narration referred to longing as a curse, that it affects you as deeply as poison or illness. Once it catches hold of you, there is absolutely no escape. Thus, we concluded that last episode's title, The True Nature of the Curse, did not only refer to Nanashi's demonstration, but to this idea of longing. The Curse of the Abyss is just as much about how it draws you in as it is about how it affects you when you try to leave. Both meanings have the same effect. You are compelled to go ever deeper, to press forward, and to suffer if you try to turn back. As the last line of this episode's opening narration states, a longing for the unknown, you see, is something not a single soul is capable of stopping. We also pointed out last time how this affects our main duo differently. This would also fit with our offsetting personalities pattern from earlier. Um, but Rico is someone suffering both versions of the curse. She has been physically damaged by the fourth layer curse, and she is consumed with the longing to go deeper. Reg, of course, is immune to the physical curse, but as we keep noting, he also does not seem to have the same strong compulsion to go deeper. He is hitched to Rico's purpose instead. If she decided to give up and go home, he would probably do the same. It's not that he doesn't care about his past, just that he is not cursed to keep chasing after it, the way cave raiders seem to be cursed by their longing. Now, while we are talking about longing in abstract terms as a shared affliction among cave raiders, it doesn't mean all of them are compelled by the same things. Early on in the series, there was a lot of focus on the value of the relics that cave raiders excavate. The children are doing the dangerous work of picking over the first lair as a way to fund the orphanage. Rico's goal that first day she finds Reg was to get the highest valuation for the relics she collected. We later learned that relics fetch a high price in other countries, and that there are illegal raids both from foreigners and the Wharf District residents. Special grade relics like the Unheard Bell are described as enough by themselves to enrich the city and ensure a squad's future. Orth and the Guild derive their livelihood from the treasures extracted from the depths. Last time I compared Orth to a remote mining outpost, a settlement that exists because of the wealth it can generate from below. It's like a 1900-year gold rush, except that the gold only exists in one place on the planet. So, from the outside, what drives cave raiders to risk the abyss appears to be just about the money, right? It's a place you can risk your well-being in the pursuit of riches. Certainly, money and the things it can bring are a powerful motivator, and for some, the pursuit of wealth consumes them as much as any curse. But looking at all the characters we've come to know, are any of them really driven by money? Is their longing nothing more than the pursuit of that sweet, sweet cheddar? I have no doubt that if relics suddenly had no value, that many cave raiders would hang up their pickaxe, but our characters all seem compelled by something else. Rico was worried about her valuation in the beginning, but only as a means to progressing in rank. She swiped the valuable star compass not for its monetary value, but because she believed it guides its user to the truth of the abyss. She intended to have it guide her to said truth, rather than exchange it for its market value, even though it would have let her pass that original valuation criteria. Pabo is pursuing the rank of White Whistle, and I get the feeling it's more the sense of accomplishment and the new areas it will open up for him. 
I'm sure it's his day job to cave raid, but his wife's inability to grasp why he would still be chasing that dream suggests it's not about the money. A pay raise would be easy for her to grasp, so that's not it. Nanashi originally wanted a change to her life, and the bottom of the world is something so different from her situation that it seemed like hope. She and Miti together both seem fascinated by the abyss and its creatures, eagerly awaiting their turn to go outside. Money never figured into it at all, and Nanachi's current expectations of traveling with Reg and Rico almost certainly don't include get rich. It's hard to guess when it comes to Ozen, as she obviously has done very well for herself along the way, but rather than live somewhere luxurious, she appears to be a permanent resident of the second level. Creating a space to shelter outcasts like her crew or Maruk seems a strong motivation, and I expect she identifies more with them than with proper surface society. Her misfits, at the very least, probably value the Abyss as a place to belong more than the riches they can pull from it. Even Bondaruda seems more interested in the pure mystery of the Abyss rather than its economic possibilities. Maybe the guild enables him or turns a blind eye because his research makes them money, but Bondaruda himself seems much more like he's in it for the discovery. Then there is Liza, who obviously made her own pile of scratch to be able to buy something like the curse-repelling vessel, but just as with Ozen, even if there was a time when money was a motivator, that has long since ceased to have primacy. In fact, the entire idea of a last dive that White Whistles embark on is counter to the notion that they are doing it for the money. Going beyond the fifth layer means no return, there's no payday for it, and no way to spend whatever has been accumulated to that point. Yet, it's apparently common enough to have its own term and be a recognizable phenomenon among cave raider society. It almost seems like a celebrated final rite of passage, despite it being the antithesis of a profit-seeking venture. Thus, even if we don't have the full picture of all our characters, it's clear at a glance that the allure of the abyss goes far beyond its potential for revenue. It's an easy bet that our characters are not alone in that sentiment. In fact, the director is the only character so far that has been portrayed as focusing on the income from relics. For a great many people then, including most of our cast, the appeal of the abyss goes further than some tangible gain. Their longing is not for riches, but something more ephemeral. The abyss stands in for something they desire or hope for. Long ago, I said that the Abyss had the potential to be a grand, multifaceted symbol of its own, an idea that we would revisit. Let us now revisit. Most visible of all concepts that the Abyss can represent is the idea of the unknown, and the appeal many have to plunge its depths therefore represent a longing for the unknown. This is more or less outright stated by our series narration. It's reinforced by not revealing what is in the package that Reg and Rico send at the end. It's even present in the characterization of Liza and Bondarud. We've only gotten to see largely positive memories involving Liza, and our examples of Bondaruda might as well be hand-picked to paint him as a monster. Yet both of these characters are still largely unknown to us, and to emphasize this, their faces are obscured. Bondarudas we've never seen at all, while Liza's has only been glimpsed in Ozen's memory, someone who actually knew her. The negative aspects of Liza, and whatever positive aspects of Bondaruda exist, are things we don't know. 
We don't even know whether these opposite characterizations exist at all. There is a fundamental element of mystery and incomplete understanding surrounding these two white whistles who are set to continue influencing our story. The incompleteness of their image underscores this. It says that this unknown quality is quite deliberate and quite central. Now, the unknown usually elicits one of two reactions, sometimes side by side, curiosity and fear. For some, the infinite reaches of space or the dark bottom of the ocean spark their imagination. They are filled with wonder at what may be out there. Others instead find these alien realms unsettling and claustrophobic. It's a sure bet that cave raiders trend towards curiosity. Some tinge of fear and excitement still clings to whatever exists beyond the known, sure, but they are drawn to bring their torches to the dark corners of the world. In this way, one of the things that the abyss signifies to me is the pursuit of knowledge. This is true in a literal sense in the series, of course, as uncovering more information and sharing it seems to be one of the guild's primary functions. But this is not the kind of research you see in a lab or a library. Demystifying the Abyss is not a series of controlled experiments. It has more in common with the explorer setting off deep into the jungle, or a naturalist traveling with a survey ship on a voyage of many years. This is the dangerous kind of discovery, pushing at the frontiers of human understanding. Just like the off-referenced longing is not regarded as a purely positive condition, the pursuit of knowledge in the series is likewise not treated as a universal good. The actual information is treated as a valuable asset, yes, and those who require it are showered with riches and fame, but our scientific pioneers are not all characterized as champions for humanity. We need look no further than Bandaruda to see the cost of treating progress or discovery as a priority against which other considerations have no say. Yet in spite of the overtly monstrous nature of what we see him do, He's also not the only seeker of knowledge we are presented with. Rico and Shiggy are both students of the Abyss, fascinated by its mysteries and thirsty for more knowledge of its depths. Rico keeps a field journal of her discoveries, complete with illustrations, data, and the results of her own experimentation. She even hopes that such a journal will be her legacy, discovered and brought to the surface with fanfare in the same way as her mother's. The difference in the way the show presents Rico and Bandaruda to the audience's sympathies are night and day, yet both are united in this quest for understanding. Perhaps a more nuanced example is Nanachi. Once she settled into her hideout, she spent an arduous amount of time trying to uncover a way to kill Miti, collecting and experimenting with poisons and other lethal means. She set out to discover a way to deal death, yet because of that effort, she also became skilled in medical knowledge and procedure. That understanding positions her to save Rico when no other hope existed. In Nanachi's case, you have the power of death in one hand and the power of life in the other. Yet both she pursues with the intent to save, releasing Miti from her nightmare and Rico from her injuries. However, the journey to arrive at that knowledge took a mighty toll and by the end, she had pushed aside her emotions and was waiting on her own chance to die. Thus, we have some overlap with our ends versus means theme, especially in the way the society seems to value this progress. There is at least some degree of looking the other way when it comes to what Bandaruda is doing. 
Liza is a celebrated folk hero, yet must answer the call to dive after the unheard bell while pregnant, despite the obvious risk. When her final notebook returns to the surface, it does not go to the very child they endangered years ago, but is claimed by the guild. They have this system for people to send balloons to the surface to share what they've learned, yet the veracity of that information is threatened by the tendency of the abyss to cause madness. The solution to this problem is to correlate the whistle ranks to the trustworthiness of what is relayed. They aren't worried about people losing their minds on the frontier of human knowledge, they're worried that those people might give them bad data. Thus, one of the elements of the prestige that white whistles enjoy is the trust in the knowledge they share. They are the trailblazers in this pursuit of knowledge, and so long as they deliver, the means by which they operate are a secondary consideration. Before leaving this theme, I want to stress that the pursuit of knowledge is not being treated as a neutral thing. It's something that can be neutral, but it can also be a source of woe or a source of deliverance. The same pursuit that births Miti's torment can keep Rico from an early grave, even if Bondrude's research is meant for society's benefit and Nanachi's research was originally meant to end a life. One can carefully catalog the world around them as Liza and Rico do, or one can actively try to bend it to one's will as Bondaruda does. Yet ultimately, their society values this discovery, bringing the unknown into the realm of the known. As Shiggy says early on, even if a white whistle loses his life, he lives on as a voice of the abyss and guides everyone. That's a very romantic way to frame the knowledge they endlessly pursue. While chasing after discoveries can enrich the entire society, there's a subset of this effort that can instead be a little more personal. I have called this in search of a past, but basically the journey into the abyss is akin to a journey into the history of the world and of one's own history in parallel. This has some obvious representation with our main duo. Reg is quite literally in search of clues to his past and came to agree with Rico that the answers must lie below. Rico is in search of her mother, which is not just a link to her only living ancestor, it's a link to the missing 10 years of history that they did not share. Her understanding of her mother, her father, circumstances of her birth, and the reason she has been left above all this time all make up the story of Rico, and yet they are all things she lacks answers for. They are all things she can perhaps unravel by pursuing downward. As they have gone along, there has been progress on these fronts, though not in the way either of them expected. Reg has had increasingly strong memories surface as they get deeper, and has gained understanding of his unique body, both the parts with the power of destruction and the parts with the power of creation. Rico has in turn learned the truth of her own existence and extraordinary birth. Yet she is also connected to her mother along the way by emulation. Walking through the same journey of discovery, taking notes in her own journal, even coming into possession of Liza's weapon. Reg's memory of Liza's cooking, sinking with the aroma of Rico cooking, suggests even a further way she is following in her mother's footsteps. She is coming to a better understanding of her mother before she ever meets her. Not the same as spending time together, but it's a start to reconstructing their bond and recovering lost history that otherwise wouldn't exist. Echoing their own personal dive into their histories, the descent into the abyss has an air to it of traveling into the past. The further one travels from the surface, 
the more remote the modern world becomes. Along the way, one passes the resting places of those who once belonged to a vanished civilization, or the windmills that have set unmoving for millennia, or even a ship somehow lodged in the midst of a great wall. The flora and fauna of the upper levels, which are still somewhat like those of the surface world, become even stranger and more alien as they descend. It's like traveling backward in time to earlier eras of biology, with the familiar world left further and further behind. One's sense of time starts to change, slowing with respect to what transpires above, as though quite literally stepping into the frozen past. Even the note that traveled up with Liza's notebook was written in the ancient abyssal script, without the modern simplified forms like in Nanachi's book. The past may be largely unknown, but it is unchanging. It can be sought out and explored like the corners of the abyss, and brought slowly into the realm of the known. So too, the pasts of Reg and Rico. But just as the descent is fraught with peril, discovering more of their pasts carries risks. Not only is the pursuit dangerous, what they learn may be terrible for them in its own right. We already talked about this back when we discussed their encounter with Ozen. Habo even foreshadowed for us that she may learn something there that she doesn't like. On the other side of that now, Riko may yet learn some things about her mother or father or past that cause some additional trauma. Considering this pattern, it would be consistent for Reg to learn something of his past that is likewise difficult to bear. This makes so much sense to me that it informs one of the few things I will speculate about at the end of this video. But neither of them is about to put aside this quest to understand their history, just as surely as cave raiders are not going to abandon the challenge of the abyss. That compulsion, that longing, cannot be forestalled by the risks involved. Now, part of why searching for their past is so important to Reg and Rico is because it's part of this next theme. The idea that the abyss and its mysterious significance represents meaning or purpose. Thus, the journey into the abyss can stand in for a search for meaning. Trying to find meaning for one's life or one's actions is one of those character motivations that shows up ubiquitously in art because it's universally relatable. Humans seek a purpose or multiple purposes to give their lives a path and a sense of accomplishment. It's something they pursue and take satisfaction from. For some, this comes from their work. For some, their families, their community, their nation. Others find it in charity or religion or the pursuit of understanding or the mastery of a craft. Losing one's purpose or never finding what gives their life meaning can leave people adrift and aimless. There is a reason I think keeping track of character goals is so important to understanding the direction of the story and the characters in it. But the way we add or subtract or alter goals up here should give a hint to the problem of purpose inherent in both characters and our real lives. That sense of meaning can be a fleeting and squirrely thing. For example, Reg has two main purposes right now protect Rico and uncover his own past, and he prioritizes them in that order. When it appears he may have lost that first goal during Rico's injury, he is utterly rudderless and beside himself. He may also one day fully recover his past and memories, which may not be entirely positive as we just discussed. If he does not add more things to give him direction or meaning, he might become a shell of who he was. In fact, this was just what he recognized in Nanachi, 
her life had been reduced down to the single meaning of freeing Miti. Once that purpose was fulfilled, she would have nothing else to live for. She tries to divert the thrust of his probing by saying she still has to take care of Rico, but Greg wants her to promise not to take her life even after that. See, the problem with deriving meaning from a list of goals is what happens when you complete or abandon them all. If one approaches their lives as just one long to-do list, what is left when the last item is crossed off? Thus, what Reg is really insisting on when he extracts that promise from Nanashi is that she find some meaning for her life that is not tied to a completable task. But what is the nature of such a thing? What can you pursue and never catch, begin but never complete, and yet find satisfaction rather than frustration in the process? That's a good question. For most of us, the answer is unknown, or at least hard to nail down. But there is a compulsion to seek it out anyway, even if the best one can hope for is to catch a glimpse of it on the periphery. It's exactly because it can't be perfectly described that one can chase it forever. The fact that one can't reach the end is not a drawback, it's the appeal. I'll revisit that idea at the very end of this video. Now, a lot of works have characters go through a journey to find meaning, but in Maiden Abyss, the journey is also a literal one, giving this theme and its progress extra emphasis. Additionally, the story doesn't suggest that chasing after meaning or a sense of purpose is a guaranteed path to happiness or contentment. Like our journey downward, it is full of risk to body and mind. But giving up the pursuit of it is still worse, as last episode's narration stated rather plainly, and Nanachi's example this episode suggests as well. Do we imagine Liza knows exactly what she was seeking at the bottom of the abyss when she set out ten years ago? Or is the fact that it may still be unknowable at the end of her journey rather the point? Like Ozen explained, it's exactly because the bottom of the netherworld is unknown, and because it is feared, that it has the power to become the cave raider's idea of God. And she will go on to say that if it was easy to head down and return, then both the value of relics and the faith in the abyss would possibly be shaken to the core. It becomes one of those items on a to-do list that someone completes, scratches off, and then moves on from. One cannot construct meaning from something so transitory. Knowing where the end of the journey is takes something away from the journey. That is especially true for the next thematic parallel. I think one can read Rico's journey in the series so far as a metaphor for the process of growing up. She was born in the abyss, after all, and she now heads in a single direction toward a bottom from which there is no return, like progressing into old age. Casting off from the surface and its familiar protection is like casting off from childhood into the uncertain terrain of adolescence and then the isolation of adulthood. The choice of orphans is again appropriate, as they leave the orphanage either when they are taken into a family or when they age out into adulthood, and Rico is attempting to do both. She is hoping to be reunited to Liza, yet in so doing is following in her footsteps, in the very same way that daughters grow up in the image of their mothers, not in all ways, of course, but recognizingly similar. One could even argue that her episode with the orb piercer and the recovery from it represent the transition to adulthood, that the child in her has died and been reborn an adult, with accompanying bloody imagery to symbolize the onset of menses. 
considering the bathing scene with Rig happens after this point, with the first hints of sexual attraction cropping up, this may very well stand in for the advent of adolescence, which is probably also literally happening to Rico. In the future, when we have seen more of the series, or even the whole journey, we may be able to look back and connect each level of the abyss to clearly delineated steps in growing up, becoming an adult, and moving on into old age. The bottom of the abyss is a complete unknown, and likewise what waits at the end of every life is a mystery unlikely to ever be dispelled. The mystery and uncertainty of death, and what, if anything, will follow. The abyss as a grand metaphor for death, and what may lie on the other side, is something hinted throughout the work, but it gets new life with Nanachi's information about the abyssal faith. We used to have a separate theme we called Point of No Return, in which we highlighted parts of the story in which characters could only travel in one direction. The nature of the Curse of the Abyss is a physical version of this, of course, making it increasingly difficult to travel upwards again. The result of this mechanic is that the path of least resistance takes one down and away from one started, rather than returning, almost like a second form of gravity. There's also stages of the abyss where crossing the threshold is much more obviously a one-way ticket. For Red Whistles, crossing into the second lair is actually considered an attempt at suicide, and any rescue efforts will be abandoned. For cave raiders in general, crossing into the sixth lair means a final dive, as no return to the surface will ever be possible. This episode's opening narration reiterates this idea as well. A journey from which you can never return, treasures that you can never again acquire, your very life, which once lost, will never be restored. Nearly all things in this world will never go back to the way they once were. Not only is there an obvious parallel to death and all that, including the actual state of dying, but these lines describe the one-way flow of things like time, or growing up, or the process of discovery which brings the unknown into the realm of the known. Once a mystery is dispelled and added to collective knowledge, it does not slip back into being mysterious, and once someone dies, they do not slip back into being alive. Except, it seems the Abyss can play fast and loose with the normal course of things. Rico was stillborn, and yet was reanimated by the curse-repelling vessel. Her first moments of life within her traveling up and out of the Abyss, like her life is a reversal of the normal flow. Similarly, there is evidence of a civilization far more advanced than the current world throughout the Abyss. They had surely brought much of the universe that was previously unknown into the realm of the known, and yet now both their knowledge and history are lost. Even the pronunciation of their language is uncertain, despite examples surviving. And Reg, of course, doesn't remember anything before waking up in the orphanage, not even his real name. Then we get to the Abyssal Faith which ups the ante by taking the finality of death and turning it on its head. It recontextualizes the bottom of the abyss as not only being representative of the inevitable one-way progression toward the unknown of death, but as the land of the dead itself. To further explore this idea and the other themes that it spins out, it is now time to visit the other soundtrack piece I referred to during earlier sections. The narration which opens our finale plays over an inset song that we had only heard once before. This narration concerns the one-way progression that is the normal state of existence. The song in question is called Underground River, 
And I suppose I don't need to point out that one of the chief features of a river is that it flows in one direction. Let us take a moment then and look at everything else going on in this piece. Like I said earlier, it wasn't until this episode that I had full context for this song and could better guess what it means. Normally, analyzing anime lyrics is something to do cautiously, as translations for meaning-dense things like poetry or songs are much more likely to diverge from the original intention or be influenced by the interpretation of the translator. Inside a story, you at least have the context of other actions and characterizations before and after a particular line, but you don't have anything like that in something this short. However, the composer of our soundtrack and this piece is a guy named Kevin Pinkin, an Australian who lives in the UK, that is, a native English speaker. These lyrics aren't a translation, but both originated and are sung in my own tongue. We can be slightly less cautious in deriving meaning from these words. So here then are the words to Underground River for the section used in Maiden Abyss. Just from the first few lines, you can probably guess what I mean by needing this finale to get the full context. Traveling the Aether back to you, to a land so far away, I feel the distance in between. Up until now, those words seemed like they could be from Rico to Liza, or from Liza to Rico. They could be between Liza and Reg, or between someone who waits for Reg that neither he nor we know about. But with the addition of Miti and Nanachi's story, and the details of the Abyssal Faith, it can now also include the two of them. Traveling the ether back to you, in particular, sounds like it could reference the journey of a soul that returns from the Netherworld almost literally Miti's last words before the curse hit. From there, the song goes, a fragment of the world that used to be, which could be the lost civilization whose relics are found all over the abyss itself, but could also be the same idea as our finale's opening, that the world is in a one-way state of change, of leaving the familiar behind, until only a fragment of what was still is. The song then says that this fragment that used to be was speaking through the river stream. There may be intentional ambiguity in the line break here. This could be about a fragment of the world that used to be as the speaker doing its speaking through the river stream, or used to be may not be a modifying phrase, but part of the verb. That is, you could read a fragment of the world as the speaker that used to be speaking through the river stream. That is, it used to be, but it is no longer. That is two different meanings. One refers to a world that no longer exists, that is actively speaking, while the other refers to a world that does exist, which used to speak, but does no longer. If this was a translation, I wouldn't bank on this English ambiguity being intentional, but using line breaks to layer multiple readings is pretty standard technique in lyricism and poetry. Let's not get too bogged down, but just know that both readings could be correct, but from the point of view of two different speakers. From there, whether the speaking is current or not, it is calling to me, luring me down. Either way, that syncs up with the series' ubiquitous emphasis on longing. Then we have, though I know just what I am, who I could be is the mystery to solve. Again, these lines would be at home on the lips of several characters. 
It echoes that search for meaning theme that we noted was present in our main cast. The thing to take particular note of is the use of knowing what I am while wondering who I could be. This sets up a contrast between a category one belongs to and the personality one could become. It seems to say that these are not necessarily the same thing. Reg is a robot, but that doesn't constrain who he is or who he could become. Nanachi is a hollow, but that is not the substance of her person. Same for Rico and being the daughter of a famed white whistle, or even Liza for being a said white whistle. In fact, in contrast to the sense of something lost or far away in the earlier lines, this part of the song is looking forward to who the characters could be. There are a lot of uses of the unknown in our work where it seems remote or unreachable or even threatening, yet in these lines the unknown, the mystery to solve, is to determine what kind of person the speaker will become. It's something close and personal, and it's something the speaker will work toward if the next lines are any indication. It says, I shall find the underground river's soul, and then ends with, let it shine and let it glow. I probably don't need to point out that shine and glow have positive connotation, and so over the course of the song, we have moved from a wistful longing towards things removed in time or space to something more forward-looking. In fact, we connect back to that very first wish of the song speaker, traveling the ether back to you and ending with, I shall find the underground river's soul. Considering the way that first line resonates so much with Miti's final request, I feel a parallel can be drawn between the underground river and wherever it is that souls are supposed to go in the abyssal faith. We do, of course, have a literal set of rivers in the abyss. Um, there's the river they fish out of on the first level that ended up carrying the star compass away. There is whatever waterway is breaking across the strange platforms in the fourth level where they encountered the orb piercer. And there is the lake which abuts the facility Nanachi escaped from on the fifth layer. That lake apparently flows downward as well, based on the waterfall-like flow they walked past on their way out, and their flight was accompanied by the sound of rushing water. And that is to say nothing of the mysterious column that is positioned above the facility that likewise has a flowing quality to it. This could be a literal version of the underground river that shines and glows, as in the song. So. It is possible that this underground river is referencing the tangible rivers we've seen and which almost certainly continue below, but like most repeated imagery and stories, there is a reading beyond the literal. In this case, we have another tension. Rivers are an ancient and widespread symbol of life or vitality. As the saying goes, civilization is always downstream. You are looking for a place to settle, water is good, fresh water is better, and moving fresh water better still. Rivers can be lifeblood for human settlements and the natural world they flow through. No doubt the same is true for the creatures and plants in the abyss. Yet there is this tension of conflating the river with the unknown, with the dark and remote, and with the realm of the dead. This is not an idea unique to our series. I'm not suggesting that Maiden Abyss is making a specific external reference here, but the idea of underground rivers being associated with the netherworld or the land of the dead is something that shows up in various world mythologies. We are going to take a little mythology detour here. 
Not because I think that Maiden Abyss is a retelling or reimagining of one myth in particular, but because there are archetypal story patterns that resonate in multiple human cultures. Considering a lot of the mysteries around the Abyss are bound up with the vanished civilization that used to occupy it, I think looking at other times out of myth helps emphasize that some of these ideas exist deep in the human subconscious. First of all, the idea of an underworld, a place below the earth where the dead go after life, is almost universal. The New World civilizations of the Aztecs, Incans, and Mayans all had such a concept, as did the Inuits. It existed in Mesopotamian cultures, in ancient Chinese and Hindu. There are underworlds in Welsh, Norse, Greek, and Japanese mythologies. That the earth below should be associated with the world of the dead is something humans independently concluded in many times and places. More interesting to me, though, is how often an underground river in particular will show up as well. I mean, there are very few actual underground rivers in the world, and due to their nature, it would be easy to live right on top of them without ever knowing. However, Aztec, Sumerian, Greek, Roman, Hindu, Philippine, and Fijian mythologies all include underground rivers as part of the land of the dead, and all of those examples also include the dead needing to cross said river as part of their task upon death. Whatever awaits them after life requires this crossing. Perhaps the example most familiar to you will be the Greek underworld and its many rivers, the most famous of which is the River Styx. There is also Charon, the ferryman transporting the dead across, though the idea of a ferryman for these underground rivers also shows up in several different mythologies. It's one iteration of the idea of a psychopomp, someone who guides the dead to the underworld, which is also a fairly widespread archetype. As long as we're on Greek mythology, in that system, there are multiple possible destinations for a soul after death. Some are more familiar, like the Elysian Fields or Tartarus, but one possible destination is the Asphodel Meadows, which is portrayed as a giant field of white flowers. This area is reserved for those not especially great or evil in their lives, a kind of neutral underworld. Interestingly, in some versions of the mythology, residents must drink from one of the underground rivers before entering, the River Lethe, which causes them to lose their memories and their identity. For other specific examples, we can go even older. In Sumerian mythology, the word Huber, might not be saying that right, uh, refers to a river of the netherworld that needs to be crossed, just like our Greek example above, complete with ferrymen, but it also has some crossover with the sea goddess Tiamat, who is associated with the primordial chaos of creation, the deep abyss from which all things proceeded. Both the Huber River and Tiamat are sometimes associated with the netherworld, sometimes with creation or fertility, and sometimes with real bodies of water in the ancient world. Like I said, Associating something life-giving, like a river, with the realm of the dead seems an odd contrast, but from these examples you can see that this is not an idea unique to Maiden Abyss. Although I'm not advocating for a specific mythology as inspiration, Sumerian does make an interesting place to start comparing. There's an association between the Abyss, or the Deep, and the unknown mysteries of the universe, there are all the elements of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which have interesting parallels. 
Even the Sumerian writing system, cuneiform, survives on hundreds of thousands of tablets, yet can only be read by a few. In fact, like the nether glyphs that Nanachi refers to, the meaning of the tablets was understood before knowing how to actually pronounce them, and some parts' pronunciation remains mysterious even if they are decipherable. Alternatively, comparing the original Abyss civilization with the myth of Atlantis will yield quite a few similarities. Maybe further lengths can be an exercise for another day. We will leave the mythology detour now. Um, I just wanted to impress upon you that an underworld that exists as a land of the dead, and yet paradoxically has one or several rivers, is an idea that is not completely out of left field. Something life-giving alongside the home of death is quite a contrast, but in that contrast lies our next theme. This theme is most visibly embodied by our new understanding of the abyssal faith, which has the souls of those who die in the abyss return to the bottom of the world, change form, and depart on a journey to one who wishes for life. These are scant details, but that sounds a lot like reincarnation, or at least metempsychosis. Reincarnation and the transmigration of souls is also one of those beliefs that's found all over, and something that gives life in the realm of the dead, like our underground river, is a perfect symbol of this. But wait. Reincarnation runs counter to a lot of our other patterns, right? We talked about the one-way flow of time, of growing up, of uncovering mysteries, of bringing the unknown into the realm of the known. The opening narration for this finale stresses the inevitable loss of what one has as one journeys along. All of this is then reflected in the nature of the abyss, which draws one inexorably downward and makes it increasingly difficult to turn back until, at a certain depth, it becomes impossible. The inability to return, whether to the surface or to the things one once had, is echoed throughout. Death stands at the end of the journey, of all journeys, as the final representative of this idea. So what would it mean to have reincarnation exist to overturn the finality of death? Is this just a vain hope that cave raiders cling to for their own sanity? Well, whether the Abyssal Faith is onto something or not, their belief in being able to return, even as a changed being, dwells firmly in the realm of one of the most universal of all story themes, death and rebirth. This is a theme I talk about a lot, but in brief, the natural cycles of the world have always made a strong impression on humankind, and therefore on the stories we tell and believe. The waning and waxing of the moon, the cycle of day and night, the ebb and flow of tides, and the changes in daylight, temperature, and vegetation over the course of a year. In all of these, humanity observes some part of the world that seemed to diminish, only to reverse course and increase again. Looking around at plants and animals and themselves, they further see this in the natural process of being born, growing up, and growing old towards death yet along the way birthing new life from your own, to continue the cycle of increase and decrease. Now perhaps because so many of these cycles involve changes in ongoing phenomena, this pattern was thought of less as a series of individual things or events, but rather a small set of things that fluctuated with time. Instead of conceiving of the history of a species or a people as a thousand lives stacked beginning to end with some overlap, it was rather a small set of lives 
that changed and repeated through generations, just as surely as it was the same sun or moon which showed more or less of themselves depending on the day. Thus, what death and rebirth is about at its core is transformation. The rebirth is not a new thing, but an existing thing restarted or reborn to start anew. The caveat is that for this transformation to occur, for there to be rebirth, there must first be death. Something must end before the changed thing begins. A common symbol associated with the death and rebirth cycle is flowers. Because of the time of year when most flowers bloom, they are not just associated with the individual plants being reborn, but the vitality of the entire world returning after the cold and dark months. Winter is the death and spring the rebirth, and flowers are spring's most ostentatious representative. Inside our series, we have the eternal fortitude blossoms. They are actually directly used in the funeral ceremony we saw at the beginning of last episode, um, an association that I already referenced. Scattering the ashes of the dead and these symbols of rebirth into the abyss makes even more sense now that we know about the reincarnation part of the abyssal faith. It becomes interesting to imagine what is implied by the way these flowers seem to grow basically everywhere that we've seen. We know death is around every corner in the abyss, but does this mean the possibility of rebirth always accompanies it and is equally ubiquitous? To use a specific example, remember the field of eternal fortunes that is supposed to be Liza's grave. Ozen dug it up to confirm that she was not buried there, but can we perhaps infer that she has gone through a death of some kind? Her whistle is there, her notebook is there, her hallmark weapon is there. The Liza that used to be may be dead, in the sense that she is not that person anymore, or is not behaving the same way. But rather than actually be dead, perhaps she is reborn as something new. Some new purpose, some new sense of priorities, maybe even some more extreme change, but a transformed Liza that comes after the old and known one has effectively ceased to be. To build off of that, Liza's whistle and notebook being found then resulted in them being sent to the surface. In cave raider culture, it appears that having your whistle come back without you is understood to represent your death, the end of your explorations. Yet the name for the celebration kicked off by the whistle's return is the Resurrection Festival. It could be that this is a literal belief in reincarnation, as now that Liza has died, her mighty soul can be resurrected in a new life to carry on. Um, in this way, the final descent into death is contrasted against the ascent of her whistle back to the surface, like a soul returning to life. More abstractly, her spirit in the sense of inspiration returns to inspire new generations of cave raiders to continue pressing against the unknown reaches below. Her death as hero serves as a model to birth new heroes in subsequent generations. This is almost just what happens with Rico, with the added link of her inheriting the White Whistle itself. The Rico who was an orphan with a vague notion of wanting to cave raid, who fell asleep or got distracted in class, that Rico is transformed by the return of the Whistle. Leader then tells her the circumstances of her birth. From this, a new Rico is reborn one who will plunge into the abyss as early as she can, even if she goes alone. Symbolically, 
she carries her mother's whistle with her, as though the death of the Liza who was, and who left it behind, is now reborn in Rico. Of course, the truth of Rico's origin has its own take on this pattern. She was stillborn, death even before life, and yet due to the curse-repelling vessel, she was reborn. She basically started with a rebirth instead of a normal birth, which I feel is the kind of thing which may eventually affect the story in a significant way. What exactly did she transform into by being reborn in this manner? At this point, I would like to point out that in all these examples, the eternal fortune blossoms, Liza's whistle, the curse-repelling vessel, all of these are completely white. Against the dark blackness of the lower abyss, the unknown, and the realm of the dead, these tangible symbols of rebirth employ the opposite color. It actually makes me wonder if the step from black whistles to white whistles is not a simple promotion, but involves something quite transformative, like going from death to rebirth. Remember all my comments about the eternal fortune blossoms swirling around Orth in the last moment? and how that recalled cherry blossoms and their emphasis on the transient, that imagery is also all about transformation. The quick change of the flowers, the slower change of the residence, the even slower change of Orth, and the still slower change of the abyss itself. Yet all slowly but surely transform. All are lumbering toward a rebirth. Nanachi experiences her own version of this thematic pattern in our finale. There is the physical transformation, of course, where she and Miti both die as humans and are reborn as hollows, but because of that awfulness, Nanachi's entire hopeful outlook toward the Abyss and Cave Raiders died as well, transformed into horror and distrust. For a time there, both she and Miti exist as though in a suspended death. Nanachi seeks release for Miti, followed by release for herself. They are dead without being technically deceased. Reg and Rico's intrusion into their life offers some hope of making their true death a reality. Yet what will happen instead is that the promise Reg extracts and the new purpose Nanachi gains alter the path she would have taken. Miti's actual death ends up being a rebirth for Nanachi, whose emotional walls come down at the same time and make it possible for her to build new connections to Reg and Rico. Miti also seems like she may be experiencing a different rebirth if Rico's dream is anything to go by. And of course, Miti's death correlates to Rico waking up from her death-like state as though being reborn into the world. All of those events together result in a Nanachi who is transformed by the end of the episode, with new friends, new purpose, and even new hope. Considering the symbols I mentioned earlier, should we consider it just a coincidence that Miti's fur was white? Or that Nanachi's hair was also white? Now, death and rebirth, as well as the notion of reincarnation, fly in the face of all of the patterns which suggest there is no return. Are these ideas just naive hope, with the reality of the abyss and all it represents more akin to despair? Or are these two contrasting patterns part of a larger ideological showdown in the series as a whole? Is something like this episode's opening narration not meant to represent the whole of the piece, but just one side of the ideas which vie against one another? Remember, I started this whole theme section by talking about tensions, and conflicting ideas or themes certainly qualify. 
The whole weight of the abyss and its curse suggests an ever downward path, that all things must head toward their end, that eventually no return is possible. In order for reincarnation to be real, or for death and rebirth to not just be death, then the story must eventually allow for the possibility of reversing course and heading back to the surface world. With that in mind, I want to briefly discuss the possibility that we have a hero's journey structure to the story as a whole. The first season is not enough to determine that for sure, but like all of the mythological echoes that I mentioned earlier, the hero's journey is an incredibly widespread pattern in stories worldwide. So much so that it is not uncommon to have it referred to as the monomyth, a term popularized by Joseph Campbell in his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Like with the Made in Abyss soundtrack, this was also something one of you guys sent me after a different discussion of the significance of his work. Thus, let me use Campbell's own words to summarize the hero's journey. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Campbell and others since then also detail the many common steps that occur along this archetypal story. Here is an illustration of the narrative structure using a Creative Commons image from Wikipedia. We're not going to run through all of the steps or anything. What I mainly want to draw attention to is that the shape of the structure is a circle. See, one of the requirements for a hero's journey is the return. The hero leaves the familiar for the unfamiliar, the known for the unknown, and by the end there is a return to some state or place like the one from which the hero began. By placing the hero back into a similar situation, the differences in that character are like looking at the entire story traced onto their person. They themselves are the map to the journey that the audience has experienced alongside. So, the return to the known world is a key component of the structure. Yet, in Maiden Abyss, we have constant reminders that a return trip for Reg and Rico is not only unplanned, it's probably impossible. The very first words of this episode are a journey from which you can never return. It's not just unlikely of having the odds stacked against the characters, because plenty of stories feature that. No, the whole defining attribute of the Abyss is that it is harder and harder to return the further one pushes in. It's why so much of it is unknown and still tantalizingly mysterious. This aspect is what gives it its compelling allure, it's what gives the relics their rarity and therefore their value, it's what makes a multi-century settlement like Orth possible, and thus it makes possible something like the Abyssal Faith. The White Whistles derive their significance, and therefore their power, by being able to return from further than others are able. Furthermore, none of our characters have a return to the surface as a driving goal. Nachi has a now-distant desire to see the bottom of the world, but is otherwise just hitched to the others while she waits to be reunited to Miti. Reg has no memory of anything before meeting Rico and the Orphan Gang, but his answers lie below and not above. He even said his goodbyes in a way that indicates he expects to never see them again. And Rico is chasing after her mother, 
who, even if she is alive, must have some compelling reason she hasn't come back. Rico even alluded to a fantasy of having her notebook discovered once she had explored more of the Abyss, further suggesting she has no expectation of a return to the surface. So then, the setting suggests it's impossible, and the characters are not even trying to defy this impossibility. Does this mean a hero's journey structure is out of the question? Well, I don't want to go through it point by point, but we've already ticked off a lot of boxes. There's call to adventure, leaving the known world, there's encountering and then leaving a mentor figure. If this is a hero's journey, then we are still on the downslope anyway. A return journey may not even be on anyone's mind. But let's assume for a moment that these characters complete our current list of goals and are still alive. Once the truth of the lowest reaches of the abyss is either realized or abandoned, what is the next step? Living out their days at the bottom? Maybe finding some unexpectedly idyllic area like the Field of Eternal Fortunes that captivated Liza? Joining to whatever permanent abyssal residence may exist? or some extant civilization isolated below? Is this likely, given the emphasis on longing and the gravity of the unknown and the narration we've had about how cave raiders seem to have this desire to always keep pushing forward? After whatever heroics are necessary to find Liza and or see the bottom of the abyss, are they going to turn to one another and say, well, good job, let's just stay here until we die? Don't forget, one of the most important things that happened in this finale was Nanachi adopting a new purpose after so many things have not gone her way. Finding a new purpose, something new to chase after, is therefore elevated in importance in the series overall. Can we really expect the whole story to end with the characters deciding that they've fulfilled all their purposes and they need no new goal to chase after? How many of the themes we've just run through would need to be overturned or abandoned? There is a further wrinkle to the possibility of a hero's journey structure and the implied return. I've already pointed out how Reg and Rico contrast in some key ways, such as their physical viability in the Abyss compared to their mental viability. We also began the story with Rico dreaming of going down, while Reg was busy coming up. They are hitched to one another during the part of the story we've seen, but is it possible that, taken as a whole, each of them is walking through their own version of the hero's journey? It's easy for us to picture Rico's side, with her finding Liza and or the Truth of Abyss, and then returning to those they left above. But Reg's story does not actually start from the surface. We don't know where exactly, but for all we know, he is already on the return leg of his journey with a story taking them to his place of birth or creation. His physical path through the abyss might be the inverse of Rico's, we just haven't seen the first part of it, and he doesn't remember. Now, there are a couple other reasons why I think we will end up with a hero's journey structure and therefore a return. Perhaps two different returns, but Rico's at least. One is simply the way the story keeps us connected to the surface by occasionally dropping in on the members of the orphanage. We did not end up with a surface B-plot, so inserting them periodically into the story implies that their role in the overall narrative is not complete. The way this finale ends with the pageantry of sending the balloon to the surface also suggests to me an eventual triumphant return. 
That journey was presented as downright celebratory, and it manages to reconnect all of the key parts of the trek so far. Whatever it was they sent back reaches the ones they left behind, stressing that the connection between them is not yet severed. But perhaps what convinces me the most is the next theme to talk about, which is that we have a pattern of reuniting. Or maybe I should say we have a lot of emphasis on the hope of reuniting. Riko is hoping to be reunited to her mother, Nanachi is hoping to be reunited to Miti, and Miti's last wish was for the same. Nato and Shigi and Kiwi and probably Leader would all be pleased to reunite to Reg and Riko, as would Habo. Bandaruda is hoping to be reunited to Nanachi, in perhaps a different way than these other wishes. Ozen's multiple bouts of nostalgia imply that she would be pleased to be reunited to Liza, at least for a time. And Reg wants to be reunited to his own past and identity. Part of that may include being reunited to someone that he doesn't even know is looking for his return. It seems plain that he and Liza spent time together, so she may be one of the ones looking out for him. But wherever or whoever he originated from may also be waiting or even actively seeking him out, which could be good or bad. Now, the series so far has included a lot of separations, some we've seen and some that are only implied, but so far, all of the instances of people separating from one another remain in this separated state. All of our potential reunifications are just that, potential. All the balls are still up in the air. That can't be an accident, right? Thus, I want to circle back to that Underground River song. Traveling the ether back to you is referencing a journey to reunite, right? Back to you? Then the following lines are about a land so far away and feeling the distance in between, implying that the separation is still current, that the reunification has not yet occurred. The fragment of the world that used to be could thus refer to how things were before the speaker was separated from whoever the you is that they are traveling back to. That world, then, is calling to them and luring them down. Knowing what I am, but what I could be as the mystery to solve, further implies that reuniting would cast some light on how they have progressed during the time apart, emphasizing the characterization aspect of the hero's journey. They will understand more fully how they have changed by being around someone they knew before. But finally, the speaker says that they shall find the underground river's soul. Leaving aside what all a soul could signify, that statement, I shall find, means they are confident they will arrive at what they seek. There is a belief that this reunification will occur. In that respect, and taken with the rest of our thematic pattern here, I feel the return implied by a hero's journey is strongly foreshadowed. If so, it means the reincarnation and death and rebirth notions gain legitimacy as well. It means the gravity of the unknown that ties so much else together can be overcome. Lastly, and yes, this is the last thing to talk about in theme, Lastly, I want to look at the title of our whole work, Made in Abyss. Like the abyss itself, this could almost certainly refer to multiple things. Titles are basically the only time in a work that the creator is speaking directly to the audience, as titles themselves exist outside the text of the story. 
They emphasize in a way that few other storytelling tools can. So much so that there is a risk of being too specific and constraining interpretation too narrowly. Thus, most good titles encourage multiple readings, either by being general enough to encompass the whole work, or by highlighting a small part of the story as important to understanding the whole. Even my silly section titles are meant to signify more than one meaning. Now, the Made in Abyss title is not a translation of a Japanese title. Rather, the Japanese title is a transliteration of the English phrase, Meido in Abyss. We don't have to guess at translation decay here, in other words. We do not yet have the whole story, and we probably haven't even met all of the characters. There are probably a lot of things that were made in Abyss that we don't yet know about. Additionally, if you expand the Abyss to also include everything the Abyss could metaphorically represent, like, for example, the pursuit of knowledge, then the list of things one can say are made in Abyss becomes quite extensive. We aren't going to attempt to enumerate such a list. I really just wanted to highlight that the title can potentially encompass a lot of subjects, events, or characters, but the key part is that the title is not The Abyss, or In the Abyss, but Made in Abyss. Things which are created or perhaps transformed by the abyss and whatever it stands for. It implies creation and change, that the abyss is a forge or a crucible or both together. Rico was born there, Reg was almost certainly created there, and Miti and Nanachi became hollows there as well. Yet all of them have also had who they are transformed by their experiences. They have been made in the abyss, but also made anew. Though I couldn't possibly have planned for this, it has taken me so long to finish the series that we now know that the anime is going to continue. Just this month, it was announced that there will be a movie to continue the next part of the story, though the fact that it exists and a working title are all the details right now. Thus, I don't think our forward-looking sections at the end here are a waste of time at all. Uh, we will keep them short, though. Like last time, we do not have a what to watch for section, but just a remaining mystery section. Dispelling the mystery of Nanachi and Miti's situation was the major focus of our finale, and most of what was unknown to us about them has been taken into the realm of the known. Nanachi still has some information about Bandaruda and that facility, but she already indicated that she would tell the full story in due time, so that's a mystery we know will be relayed to us soon enough. However, filling in Miti and Nanachi's story raised all kinds of new mysteries surrounding Bandaruda and that facility, and I'm not so sure that Nanachi has all of those answers. Chief among them is what we talked about in Goals. Bandaruda's driving purpose is still unknown. In abstract terms, it concerns driving back the darkness, and so we assume it's at least somewhat about the pursuit of knowledge or understanding, but the specifics elude us, and possibly Nanachi as well. This just joins his purpose to all the other unknown goals which belong to Reg and Liza. Now that there's no question the two knew one another, these may end up being the same goal, but for now they remain an unresolved mystery. 
We had a list of objects we talked about last time whose purpose and or location are still mysterious. Pretty much no new information has arisen. Blaze Reap is missing, the Star Compass is missing, Rico's notebook is missing, assuming it isn't incinerated. We don't know the purpose of the necklace, or of the star compass, or the relic that the cryptic message was written on, or Reg's helmet and the symbols that occasionally show up there. And we don't know why Liza sent back her whistle, or Blaze Reap, or her notebook, or that relic, assuming that she is not dead, and they therefore had some other purpose. I think we can count on the Star Compass and Reg's helmet and the necklace all coming back into the story, as all of those were referenced multiple times without giving further explanation. We seem to be headed to that facility soon, if not next, and so mysteries surrounding it and Bondruda are probably next up to be dispelled. One thing I would like to add to that list is, how complicit is the guild in what Bondruda is doing? Like I said, the transport infrastructure required to get dozens of children down that far seems like it would be impossible to keep quiet, so somebody in authority must have an inkling of what is going on. What is their goal in all of this? In addition to that, or perhaps in contrast to it, are the other White Whistles Ozen named actually down here? And what is their role in all of this? I get the feeling White Whistles are more like lone eccentrics than top-level bureaucrats, and each of them having their own pet project or focus seems more likely to me than all of them being complicit in whatever Bondaruda is up to. So what they are up to is a mystery only hinted at if it comes into the story at all. I also raise the idea that this could be Earth due to the globe in Miti's bedroom. That might not matter, but since their technology is divergent from our own, it raises the possibility that this is the far future or far past. There was also the birthday sickness that affected Kiwi last time. It's obviously coming from the abyss itself, since moving offshore cures him immediately. However, it's a new phenomenon, suggesting that there is some greater mystery behind this change. Finally, of course, we have the first big mysteries of the series. Where did Reg come from, and what happened to Liza? The only progress on these fronts is that the link between them has gone from something we suspected to confirmed, though we don't yet know the extent of it. But the answer to one or both mysteries may be contained in that link. Owing to the fact that these mysteries started our series, I expect we will have new mysteries both arise and be resolved before both of these are especially since the story is bigger than I initially realized. On that note, let us move to our speculation about the rest of that story. So, speculation. In spite of the long path to this final video, my community moratorium means that I am still unspoiled about the future of this series. I was, what, like two-thirds of the way through before even knowing that the story wasn't going to complete? This means that a lot of the things I have speculated before now that I thought would happen during this season are still things that may happen down the line. Certainly things like the Star Compass will come back into the story, though because of my initial impression of the overall structure, I guessed that someone would have found it before now. Even realizing this finale was a double episode would have changed what I guessed about the direction of a few things. What that means for me when looking ahead blindly is that I need to consider the scope. 
by dividing this entire first season off as its own myth arc to join Nanachi to Reg and Rico, the scope of the entire story potentially grows quite large. There is likely a lot more characters below them than it has seemed throughout most of the series. We know there are supposed to be other cave raiders around, and they do run into a few, but it felt like the abyss was largely empty wilderness, with only a handful of sapient beings in any level at a time. However, the size of the operations going on down in the facility, the fact that infrastructure exists to ferry dozens of people into those lower levels, the creation of hollows, and whatever it is that is driving Bondaruda and his minions to these lengths, all of that gives me the impression that there is a bigger world down here and an accompanying bigger story to encompass it. The Abyss seems less like an increasingly remote desert whose bare center they travel toward, and more like a dense and mysterious jungle whose heart draws ever closer. That said, I am not going to run back through everything I have guessed could still happen. I'll touch on a couple things I know are probably wrong. I'd guess the possibility that Reg could turn out to be Torka, uh, Rico's father, in a new form. While I suppose that our new reincarnation reveal could still make that technically true, the Hot Springs scene leaves me wanting to be completely, utterly wrong. I do still think we are missing something when it comes to Torka and his fate, but no longer think it will go down the way I first guessed. That said, Reg's origin may yet be close at hand. When speculating last time, I wondered if Reg might not have originated from the same place as Miti and Nanachi, even though I didn't quite understand how those two came to be. This, even though we guessed someone was experimenting on hollows in the levels below. I was led astray by Nanachi's habit of dodging the question into believing that she was not actually a hollow, so I got all of that wrong. But I did think Nanachi's reaction to Incinerator was one of recognition rather than surprise. This time we learned that it was so, that she had seen something like it on a smaller scale in the possession of Bondaruda. The link this suggests is pretty obvious. Reg may have come from that facility, or may be a creation of Bondaruda himself. There is still too much mystery around both of them to be very confident in this, and the weirdness of time down here also muddies any attempt to guess at a timeline. But we can tell that Bondaruda wants to press further into the Abyss. Reg is basically designed to withstand the Abyss, especially his immunity to the curse. You could hardly hope for a better scout or field researcher. And I did say that a potential downside to Reg recovering his past was implied by our thematic patterns. Now, Reg or someone just like him shows up in Liza's notebook, apparently just as she is drawing close to the seventh layer. The sixth layer is the one from which you can't return, and entering it is therefore your last dive. In fact, it's even called the Capital of the Unreturned. So we know Liza was in the layers below Bondaruda and the facility, and that they cannot go to where she is without abandoning what they're doing but someone like Reg could return from there. Is this just how the two met, since it seems plain they did meet? Liza can't come back to the upper levels now, but her whistle, notebook, and weapon were all transported up to the fourth layer. Reg's memory of her burial site pretty strongly suggests that he was the one who did so. 
Did Bondaruda create or find Reg and send him after Liza, or at least to the same area? And in the course of that journey, did Liza change Reg's trajectory or purpose or worldview, eventually resulting in his journey to the surface, perhaps even specifically to make contact with her daughter? All of those things seem plausible inside the scope of the story we have right now. But like I said at the beginning of this section, the story is potentially way larger than I can guess. I increasingly believe there is a host of characters down below, that the lower levels aren't barren or deserted at all. All kinds of narrative detours and complications could still be waiting to intersect our little crew as they set off to challenge the deep. Further, things like the birthday sickness, the swirling of eternal fortunes, and the new prominence of death and rebirth all suggest that the Abyss itself is undergoing a transformation. We know about the mysteries I listed already, but what about the unknown unknowns of our future story? The things that we don't know that we don't know. In the spirit of that thought then, the last thing I want to talk about is part speculation, part theme, and I've just called it the final unknown. I don't know how long the story will eventually be, or if the source material is finished or still ongoing or what. Despite that, I want to talk about how the entire thing ends, however distant that end may be. Something that was increasingly clear in the early part of the season, and then began to be outright stated, was the critical role the idea of the unknown plays in this work. Ozen spelled it out the most directly, that the bottom of the abyss has the power to even become the concept of God because it is unknown, because it remains unreachable, mysterious, ever so tantalizingly beyond one's grasp. You cannot return from the bottom, and only fragmented bits of knowledge can escape. The relics become increasingly difficult to extract, which makes them rare, which gives them some of their value. That value builds the city of Orth, it feeds and clothes and houses its people. A mystery to chase after that can also put food on the table inspires children and dreamers, even those from far distant countries. That unknowable deep and the certainty that something must be down there draws all of our attention down as surely as its gravitational pull. Both the characters and the audience find their imaginations expand with the possibilities. In the context of storytelling and the in-universe people of Made in Abyss, then, the concept of the unknown is almost sacred. Thus, my far distant speculation is that no matter what else happens, no matter who succeeds in reuniting or returning, or whatever other mysteries are dispelled, at the final accounting of our story, some aspect of the Abyss will remain completely unknown. We won't learn everything. Perhaps the very bottom, perhaps whatever the star compass points towards, perhaps the original purpose of the abyss or the curse, or the mystery of the people who lived here before. Perhaps even something we don't know that we don't know. Whatever is left after the story runs its course and more things are revealed will remain beyond our understanding for good. What's more, our characters may even be presented with the choice to leave some final aspect unknown, and if proffered such a chance, I predict that they will leave the mystery intact. See, the power that the unknown has over our characters and the shape of the narrative is almost supernatural, but it exercises a similar power over the audience. All good storytellers learned somewhere along the way that reality is no match for our imaginations. 
A story that gives some details but not others invites us to begin filling in the blanks with our own minds. We imagine what characters are doing off screen, or where the path they didn't take leads, or what is beyond those trees, that mountain, this river. We cease being a completely passive observer of the created world and are instead involved in its creation. Even if it's only temporary, we supply our own answers to the questions which arise and the ones which remain. Yet every time an answer is given, every time something is taken from the unknown and into the known, we return to being spectators only. The million, million possibilities collapse into one. Now this is a normal part of storytelling, and a good tale will introduce new questions all along, balancing the parts which are made plain. Getting solutions to a story's mysteries also has its own satisfaction beyond being an essential part of the process. But there is value in leaving unsaid the things that can be unsaid. It is the difference between handing someone a completed illustration and handing them a page from a coloring book. You are more invested in outlines that you've shaded in yourself than a picture already complete. The value of this interactive quality goes for all stories. Maiden Abyss is not special in that regard. Why then do I think its usage of the mysterious is singular enough that we should expect some final unknown at the end of things? Basically, the power of the mysterious that draws us into a story has been shown in-universe to draw many characters and purposes toward itself. Dispelling that mystery affects us both. No matter how interesting or creative of an answer could exist, it cannot compete with the disparate dreams among our cast. The behavior of all those in our story can only make sense if the unknown retains its magnetic power. A definitive answer dispels that power. Thus, if I was to boil this entire section down to a single sentence, this would be it. There is no single solution to the mystery of the unknown that is greater than the sum of our wonder. No matter how intriguing, no specific explanation will have the same power to move all these fates as those million, million possibilities that they imagine. Ozern says that the type of relics that make up Reg are not absent from guides because they haven't been discovered, they're absent because they simply must not exist. The details of reality dispel the power of the central mystery. Some people won't like this if it turns out to be true. They conflate the unanswered with the unresolved. But I think a moment's reflection will reveal that most of us like an element of the unknown to our lives. Most of us wouldn't want to know the exact day and hour of our deaths. We don't want to already know how the book we're reading ends. We don't want to know the punchline before we are told the joke. That which we have yet to know is tantalizing and attractive. It draws us towards itself and captures us in its orbit. That power remains only so long as it is unknown. The fun of speculation depends on us not knowing. The enjoyment of making wild guesses in the midst of a story eventually wanes and disappears if the story is neatly tied up in a bow. Right now, it is fun to make outlandish theories about what the abyss could be. Is it Atlantis, met with some cataclysm in the past, or brought low by their own hubris? Are these the progenitors of mankind, driven to this final outpost by the spread of their hostile children? Does time slow almost to a stop as you go down, 
allowing some past civilization to survive into the present, or weather some kind of worldwide change. Does time actually reverse at some point, with the bottom of the abyss some nexus to the past, or to some other universe? Is the curse-repelling vessel a machine for capturing souls? Is the abyss quite literally the land of the dead, with its trials meant to discourage the living from attempting to enter? Does that mean Rico's story is a retelling of Orpheus, or Persephone, or even Enkidu? Or does Liza's ten-year journey make her story a retelling of the Odyssey? Is the bottom inhabited by gods, or demons, or aliens? I don't even know what kind of outlandish ideas might exist out in the fan community. My somewhat belabored point is this. Are any of those answers so perfectly satisfying that they override the enjoyment of imagining all those possibilities, no matter how remote? Would the way Cave Raiders and Orth and our cast view the world still be the same if any of those turned out to be true, or no matter what ended up being the real truth? The unknown in our story is more than just technique. It is the central lodestone that moves these fates. It's not a specific thing that so inspires them. In fact, no single thing could inspire so many. Instead, it is the infinite possibilities each imagines or hopes for that drive them to these incredible lengths. As I said when we talked about the search for meaning, the fact that one can't reach the end of the journey is not a drawback, it is the appeal. Their longing is not for one answer in particular, but the chance to pursue an answer to see if the reality they imagine can be better than the reality they inhabit. I cannot imagine our storytelling will undermine the power of that concept, and we will be left at the end with some compelling final unknown. This ends my analysis of the finale, and therefore the first season of Made in Abyss. Until my next video, my look at this series is both the first and last things I have done, and following it all the way through encapsulates my own journey into the unknown. How was that for thematic resonance? Depending on the timing and how widely it is released, I hope to resume this conversation sometime after the follow-up movie releases. Until then, I hope this increased your enjoyment of this phenomenal series in some small way. Thanks for everything. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.